if an education system can nurture enthusiasm, then the kids are going to be fine. But it's if they stamp down on it and crush it. I know I know many people who talk about their school experience as just crushing their, you know, their sense of enthusiasm for literature or or, or for anything like that. Um, that's where that's where the problem is. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, you magical mammals. Welcome to episode 34 of the Rethinking Education podcast. I have a slightly different offering for you today in that my guest is not from the world of education. Today, I am speaking with John Higgs, a cultural historian and author who I came across when I saw him do a talk in a tent in Brighton last June. That night, he was talking about his most recent book, William Blake versus the World. I bought a copy that night, and honestly, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Whether you're into Blake or not, I am confident that you will love it. John manages to break down Blake's poetry and mythology in a really engaging way, and it's just a staggering achievement. After that, I fell into a bit of a John Higgs rabbit hole, as you'll hear in this conversation, and ended up reading four more of his books in quick succession. The next book of John's that I read was called The Future Starts Here, and this was the initial reason that I decided to invite him onto the podcast. In this book, John points out that we hardly ever hear anyone talking about a positive vision of the future, and that this is a fairly recent development and a hopefully short-lived one. As I was reading this book, it occurred to me that this is actually quite a serious problem for educators. In a nutshell, we're preparing young people for a future that we don't seem to believe in. Then I read another of John books, this time a history of the 20th century called Stranger Than We Can Imagine, which again, I highly recommend. When you're born in the 21st century, as the majority of us were, you're a bit too close to see it for what it is. But when you stop to think about it in the grand sweep of history, the 20th century was absolutely insane. And many of the ideas in this book started to infiltrate my thinking about education, because if you want to understand where we're going, you need to understand where we are and how we got here. And so this conversation draws together ideas from a number of John's books, and it's really an attempt to weave a positive narrative about the future and where we might be heading. We also ended up talking for quite a long time about private schools and how, as John puts it in one of his books, when you look at what goes on in the House of Commons, it's hard not to conclude that there is something very wrong with the private education system. For reasons that are at least partly mysterious to me, on the day we recorded this conversation, it seems my computer was visited by the techno gremlins, and about halfway through the recording, a hiss starts to appear on the track that my voice is recorded on. I've tried in vain to get rid of it, although I have since improved my audio setup, so hopefully it won't happen again. But if you do notice a bit of a hiss as the podcast progresses, please do not adjust your set. It's not you, it's me, and I'll try not to make a habit of it. But I do strongly recommend that you stick with this episode to the end because it builds into what I think is a really optimistic, hopeful and yet realistic vision of the future that I for one want to throw my weight behind. So, without further ado, I will hand over to my recent conversation with John Higgs. 
please do let me know what you think via Twitter or the Rethinking Education community or Carrier Pigeon or whatever. There are links in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the show. John Higgs, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Hi, James. It's really great to to be able to spend some time with you. Thank you for, for taking the time. I'm afraid I'm going to begin by saying some nice things about you. <laughs> oh, well, I'll just, I'll just leave the room for a short period. Yeah, okay. <laughs> just, just go make a cup of tea. So, so, so I came across you only quite recently. I'm not sure even when it was. Do you remember when the Blake, when you did a talk at the Spiegel tent in Brighton about Ah, uh, yeah, that might have been last year. It's so hard to, to have a sense of time passing <laughs> these past few years, but I think that was probably last spring. Okay. That's when, that's when the Hardback Blake book came out. Right, okay, yes, yes. So so that was the first, and, it, and that was the reason that I went to that thing. I've been to a few of those of those nights that, that David Bramwell um, uh, yeah. puts on. Was, was that the one that was also about foghorns? It was yes. about foghorns and William Blake. Yes, that was a great night. I enjoyed that yeah, a lot. Yeah, there was the lady from Radio 3 who's just yeah. written a book about foghorns. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was fantastic. Jennifer Lucy Allen, it's a fantastic book. And, and I just love the fact that when we said we'll do a talk about foghorns and William Blake, absolutely everybody thought that made sense. It's yeah. like, yeah, oh, right, okay, that sounds good, foghorns and William Blake. Nobody said, but that's, you know, those two things have nothing to do with each other. What, what's the matter with you? You've just lost the plot. Everybody just got it. It was it was superb. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I, I don't know why that is, but I, I I had the same thing. I was just like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and so so William Blake versus the world was this the, the, the most recent uh, book that, you, that, that was published. And it's absolutely a phenomenal achievement. I th- I've really enjoyed it. And I would happily talk to you for three hours about that. Um, oh, but, I, that, yes, I would talk back for at least, <laughs> at least six about yeah. Blake. <laughs> um, but that would be harder to justify on, a, on an education podcast. Although there, is, there, there are a couple of interesting educational angles of Blake, which I think it might be interesting to, to, to start with. Mm. One of them being just about how you spoke about that night, and you also talk in the book about how Blake is really unique in the way that he's embraced by people from all across the political spectrum, from all different walks of life, yeah. uh, from different sort of social classes and so on. Um, he's embraced by working class people. Obviously, Jerusalem is embraced mm. as the sort of the unofficial uh, English national anthem. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something just fascinating about Jerusalem and and what it means and, and the way that it's sort of sung so passionately by by so many people. And often people don't really know what it means and what Blake was getting yeah. at. So I wonder if you'd, if you'd like to just explain that. Yeah, this is what I love about uh, William Blake. You know, Jerusalem, the hymn Jerusalem uh, you talk about, you, you might associate it with the sort of flag-waving last night at the proms, very sort of establishment, patriotic sort of thing. Or you might associate it with, you know, uh, a socialist folk singer like Billy Bragg or like a rave band like the KLF or... Um, you know, a colliery band in a northern working area. You know, it's sung by the Women's Institute. It's sung by the English cricket team. You know, it's it's sung at the Labour Party conference. It's sung at the Tory Party conference. It's sort of nothing else crosses over into every corner of uh, specifically English society in the way that William Blake and Jerusalem does, um, which obviously makes it uh, valuable, especially in these sort of very splintered times. Um, but when you look at where the words come from, 
They're from um, the words about him. They're from the preface to his poem, Milton. Uh, and if you see them in the context, they're much angrier. They're much more of a rallying cry. And they're very much uh, a condemnation of the great schools, which were then Oxford and Cambridge, churning out these sort of uninspired minds, which went to then to the court, to the universities, to the campus, as he, as he, as he talks about the hirelings, he called them. Uh, and it was his belief that the education system was uh, at that time just about rote learning and rote uh, remembering um, of Greek ideas. And he just he just hated that. He, it, it was it was there was no inspiration in it. There was no um, there was nothing living or vivid. Uh, and, and Blake saw the world uh, in a way that was very uh, on an important level, very different to Greek philosophy and Christian thought uh, in that he thought the divine was internal, that uh, that, well, as it says in the Bible, the kingdom of heaven was within. That was very much Blake's sort of view. But that's very different to uh what we are taught in those schools that you know uh, that, that have this tradition of greek philosophy and and christian thought where heaven is away you know heaven is beyond heaven is somewhere you you might get to after death but you sort of can't get to now so he he's very much um wanting the entire edifice of our education system to be torn down in those words that are so beloved by the the, the whole of the, the country. Uh, and so when you get public schools and, you know, Eton and, and places like that all heartily singing Jerusalem, it's very funny. <laughs> it's basically just hilarious. Yeah, it's fascinating. And so just for the benefit of listeners, I know that you know this well, but just like the, the bit that comes before those famous words, in, the, in the, this preface to Milton, I've got it here. It goes, rouse up, O young men of the new age, set your foreheads against the ignorant hirelings. For we have hirelings in the camp, the court and the university who would, if they could, forever depress mental and prolong corporeal war. Painters, I call on you, sculptors, architects, Suffer not the fashionable fools to depress your powers by the prices they pretend to give for contemptible works or the expensive advertising boasts they make of such works. It goes on saying, we do not want either Greek or Roman models if we are but just and true to our own imaginations. It's pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, harder to harder, but it's, it's sort of prose that bit, isn't it? You can see why that yeah. bit didn't make it into the song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, uh, obviously, I've written a book called William Blake versus the world. I'm very keen to sort of promote that book. But I generally think that if people spend a bit of time to get their head around William Blake and how he thought and how he saw the world, it's 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 really enriching. It really improves the quality of your life. Uh, it's it cuts through a lot of the um Kant and uh, you know the stuff that you have to sort of put up with the the, the regular sort of um, crud of of modern British life in a beautiful <laughs> way. It's it's great. Heartly recommended. Yeah, absolutely. There's that lovely quote from Terry Gilliam, wasn't there? Who said that like reading your book uh, allowed him to finally understand Blake, and I felt very much the same. Yeah. Because um, it, it's not. It's quite sort of impenetrable, isn't it? If you want, if you just go in at the poems, and he's got all of these characters that he uses to describe different parts of the of the human psyche, essentially. Yes. And if you if you like, your book sort of works almost like as a key, right? To sort of to, to unlocking. Uh, like a legend or something that explains what all of these different things are and how they interact. 
that was very much the idea. There's an awful lot written about Blake uh, on uh, university presses, uh, and a lot of it's and it, most of it's fascinating, and it's all of it's good, and it's all interesting. But Blake, for many people, uh, has this air of being impenetrable. I always use the uh, the metaphor of he's like you come across this extraordinary sort of gothic castle, and you know that deep inside there's wonders and treasures. But there's no obvious way in and you don't know if you're allowed in and you don't know if people will stop you and, and there's no, no moat or anything like that. Um, and, and so many people say to me things like, um, oh, I love Blake, but, you know, I don't read him, you know, or I don't understand him, but I know he's on my side. There's this we're drawn to him, but people are just prevented somehow from sort of grasping him, which is what the that's what the hope of the book uh, you know, was about. That's what I was trying to sort of do for, for Blake. Mm, well, you succeeded. Honestly, I, I thoroughly recommend it to any listeners. If you're already interested in Blake or if you're not, I heartily recommend it. It's just absolutely fascinating. Especially the, there's, a, there's a chapter in there where you, you're talking about his... We, we won't go into this now because it's too complicated and a little bit off topic, but mm. where, where it's the chapter about the imagination and the mm. way in which he sort of... He categorises different levels of sort of or states of states of consciousness, states of grace that you can enter into his so-called yeah. fourfold vision, and you map that against Timothy Leary's eight eightfold yes. scheme of the mind. <laughs> it's like you're sort of like a geographer of the of the mind of the imagination. It's really interesting to see that there are parallels between what very wildly different people have come up with. Yeah, they're very different maps by very different people from very different cultures at very different times, and yet they match so beautifully. Uh, that you can you can sort of see it, and seeing them together like that puts them both into context and, and puts you uh, uh, g- gives you a great sense of that. Oh yeah, I see I see what they're talking about now. You're looking at it from all these different angles, you you, you get something useful from it. I think. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So and 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 also famously, Blake didn't go to school. Yeah. Or he left school at a very young age. Yeah, he was home taught. Uh, and uh, he was basically just free to sort of roam the fields as a child uh, in a level of um, a, a freedom that for modern day children is just incomprehensible. You know, he talks, he lived in the centre of London, but he, he walks out, he'd go over the bridge, he would sort of head down to what is now just this immense concrete metropolis of, of South London. But it was it was Arcadia in his vision. It was fields and, and animals and farms and, and just just beauty everywhere uh, with no responsibilities, no adult cares. And he was just free to sort of wander. And uh, and that really sort of runs through his his work, this 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 vision of how the world should be, you know, the, you know, the, the, the paradise is our birthright. That's how it should be. Uh, and you, if we're going wrong, you know, we just have to get back to that. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, so so the, the, you know, the, there's this, there's quite a strong like, the the, re, the rethinking education podcast and the community is really it's a big tent, mm. uh, but there are many people in it who who've spoken about um, about you know the, the, like the ways in which schools can place limits on what again what Blake might have called the mind forged manacles right yeah, like the way that absolutely. we that we mentally sort of restrict what we can and can't do mm-hmm. um and and there's yeah there's there are many people who I think will be will be um 
interested in hearing this this vision of Blake as somebody who walked free and, and whose imagination literally just... Yeah, and I, I think it's part why he was so mocked in his own time and why he was so dismissed as a madman and uh, was so, you know, unsuccessful and, and so poor. Um, it's that people who had been trained to think in a particular way just couldn't understand him. You know, he, he wasn't great at explaining himself. He kind of thought that everybody should know this thing, you know, so he wasn't doing himself any favours. But people had been taught in the education system of the late 18th century to think in a certain way uh, that included certain assumptions that he did not share. People who had been trained in the education system of the late 18th century um, just couldn't understand him uh, because there were certain uh, assumptions baked into their worldview that they'd got from their education system that he was outside of and he, he didn't share. Uh, and so from Blake's point of view, he saw all these educated people as blinkered in some way. Uh, the mind forged manacles is, the, is, is, is his great metaphor, you know, the, 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 how, how it traps the way we sort of think ourselves. Now, you can't avoid this. You know, we all have our blind spots. So, yes, um, I thoroughly recommend to people that they that they get a hold of that book. And then that by coincidence, that same week, I was I was given um, a, a copy of another one of your books by a friend who said, you have to read this. Like, this is really, really good book. And it was The Future Starts Here. Ah, lovely. Um, and this was the initial sort of spark that led me to to want to make contact with you. And this is where the conversation will will probably sort of go um, in a little while. But just to, just for the, for the benefit of listeners, can you just explain a little bit about what The Future Starts Here is about and what prompted you to write that book? Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was written in the... I mean, I started it in 2017 and it came out about three years ago. So it's very much in that sort of deep uh, Trump era period where there was just nothing positive in the worldviews of everyone speaking in the media um uh, there was in our in, in in our films there was no positive visions of the future uh it was it was just extraordinary uh, the level of um uh, our inability to conceive of a future worth living in at that time uh and so that's what sort of prompted me to um to write that book it's i think it's changed now I think there is a lot more um, evidence uh, of, of hope um, and optimism uh, bubbling through in a way that there wasn't just a, a few short years ago, uh, which is really pleasing. But it's it's sort of an interesting time capsule, I think, that book, because it talks about things like um, Generation Z, for instance, the arrival of Generation Z. And it was written at a time when we didn't really know what they were called. And I sort of took a punt that maybe Generation Z would be the, the, the term that, that sort of caught on. Unfortunately, it did. So I'm, I'm sort of very sort of pleased about that. But when it came out, people were just furious that like the millennials are not the young people anymore. And it was just seems that seemed to be such a, a shock. And there was a real, it really divided people by age, that book, in that uh, younger people, millennials in particular, um, would just have been the most uh, ecstatic and and uh, 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 and supportive of it, whereas the sort of post-war um, generation could get really angry about it. The the notion that there was a new generation that had come along who thought and saw the world differently than they did, uh, it 
they took it personally. It seemed it seemed to be a sort of a real insult to them. Um, yeah, it was odd. It was odd the reaction to that book when it came out. Mm. I, th- I think it makes a bit more sense now, actually, even though what it's saying is is a little bit it's stating the obvious a bit now. <laughs> but at the time, it was it seemed important to say. Yeah, well, well, so so I'm interested to hear about. Uh, but I, well, I say we'll we'll get more into this later. I just want to sort of flag it at the moment. But the reason that I wanted to that I initially reached out to you before I read some more of your books, which I'll come on to in a minute. Um, is that is this idea that that you, there are very few positive narratives about the future? Um, I'd be interested to hear. You. So you say that this is that this has changed a bit. Of like, what what do you see that's happening now that wasn't happening three or four years ago? That like oh, this green shoot. Just just you know comments on social media. Um, you know, uh, I, I mean there was a a personal one for me which I I find really sort of moving was when I when I initially did talk about the ideas leading up to this uh, book I, I came up with the phrase pessimism is for lightweights and uh, in that in the talk in the audience of the talk was the poet Selena Godden who was also doing a turn at the at the event and speaking to her earlier uh, sorry afterwards she sort of came up and she said how much she loved the pessimisms for lightweights and I'm going you have to use this in a poem you must use this in a poem because um I don't know if you know Selena Gordon uh but she is just a force of nature she's a really wonderful sort of powerful sort of passionate sort of uh extraordinary poet she's just written a novel called Mrs Death Mrs Death which I heartily recommend to everyone I think it's coming out in paperback about about now, about this week, um, and she so she wrote this poem, "Pessimism is for lightweights," and she performed it at the Women's March uh, in Trafalgar Square in London to about twenty thousand people, and they're all chanting this slogan, "Pessimism is for lightweights," and wow. it became a hashtag, and it and it became it was just such a uh, it was I think it was just been just such a drought uh, of of optimism. Uh, that to see it sort of come through uh, just meant so much. It was, it was just, it was really, and so I'm seeing a lot more of it now. Uh, and um, I'm not obviously not talking about blind optimism. Obviously, blind optimism is is no use at all. But I talk in the book about pragmatic optimism, which takes on board uh, the fact that um, you know the optimistic mindset will sort of look for solutions and come up with all sorts of things which may or may not work, whereas the pessimist will just not bother. They'll just sort of give up, you know, and so it just on a, on a sort of, you know, simple mathematical level, you know, adopt, adopting a, pra, a pragmatic, optimistic mindset is the best way forward. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that was the initial sort of spark, as I say, because this is something that came up, I believe, in the first episode of this podcast with Debbie Kidd, mm. who has written a book called A Curriculum of Hope. And she, she talks, if, if we didn't talk about it in that podcast, she's certainly written about it in one of her books, about how um, we, we lack hopeful narratives about the future. Yeah. And I think that it's definitely true that, that um, you know, like in the book, you talk about how, you know, the last, the last sort of big film to have a positive vision of the future was Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is basically like the 1980s, but with more water slides. Basically. That's um, the best that they can come up with, you know, better <laughs> yeah. water slides. Yeah. Um, and, um, 
And then even things like Star Trek, which are built to create a positive vision of the future, just became, you know, dark and and, and miserable and things like that. And, and things like planting a, a time capsule that will be found in 500 years time that you know was a, a big part of my child in the 70s blue peter was always planting a time capsule for people in the future to things like that have just sort of fallen away and you know yeah they have they have and that innocent sort of vision of the future and it, and it just struck me as i read that book that, that that's a really fundamental problem that educators face that we're in the business of preparing young people for the future. Mm. And it doesn't seem to be a future that we really believe in. Mm. You know, like, like the, the stories that you hear about the future are ecological collapse, climate catastrophe, like just the, the, the language, you know, the, the, you know, the like AI's yeah. going to destroy us either, you know, you know, in some sci-fi sense or just like accidentally. This is some, a really interesting book. Uh, have you read um, the, the AI Does Not Want to Hurt You? Um, no, I've not a, read that one. Really interesting. I can't remember. The, uh, Tom Chivers wrote it, mm -hmm. a science writer. Uh, fascinating read. But um, there are p lots of people who are very, very deeply concerned about about the the way that AI not because not through some like laser dogs with machine guns are going to destroy everyone, but just like by accident when you when you're creating mm. something that's super smart, that sort of knows how to not turn itself off, for example, knows how to make copies of itself. Then it's sort of out of your control, and like you could accidentally, you know, have this runaway. They call it the, like the paperclip apocalypse. Have you come yeah. across that idea? But again, it's it's very much the sort of um, uh, idea that people like ourselves who were raised in the in the late twentieth century will come up with. Um, in reality, nobody's going to build a machine that you can't turn off. That's going to you know, it has the power to destroy the world. Uh, AI is, we, we project um, uh, awareness onto it when it has none. It doesn't know that we exist. It doesn't know that it exists. It's just this mach these machine learning algorithms. It's basically a tool, and whoever's using the tool is responsible for the tool. The idea that um, it will supersede us um it just i just don't see it the idea that it will become aware of the world just isn't there and ai gets better and better at performing defined tasks that we give it mm. you know we define the goal and it gets better and better and doing it and it's doing some amazing things it's extraordinary uh the the advances but it's getting no closer to setting its own goals because to set its own goals it would have to understand that the world exists and that it exists and we're just not getting there. And there's so much of talk about AI has the assumption that it will suddenly spark into self-awareness, that it will become conscious like a human. Uh -huh. And and it, there's no reason at all to think it will do that and to think that the arrangements of the neural network, it's got a model of a neural network in, in, its, in its memory, to think that that works in the same way as the physical, you know, biochemical mush that is a brain that creates consciousness through however sort of way. They're very, very different things, absolutely different things. Uh, and so there's a lot of assumptions based into our fear mongering that we sort of don't notice, that we sort of take for take for granted. And, and a lot of that book comes down to the fact that those who was raised in the late 20th century sort of raised to understand the world from the perspective of individualism uh and we think that that's normal and we think that that's enough and we think that that's a good way of seeing the world uh, and it just isn't 
Uh, and there is a generation coming up now who will post individuals and they do see the world very, very different. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so this is, this is a perfect segue. So, so we're going to, we're going to come back to this. I just wanted to sort of flag it. So, so, so I read that and I was like, right, I need to talk to John about that. And then I read three more of your books. I went, they went into oh, the, into the, into the <laughs> John a, Higgs. I'm liking the commitment here. Rabbit hole. Well, they're just, they're just really, and they're very eclectic. So the next one was the KLF book. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Chaos Magic and the Band That Burnt a Million Pounds which we probably won't talk about much today, but I, again, heartily recommend it to anyone because it's so fascinating, that book. It almost mm -hmm. hurts. Uh, really interesting. <laughs> and there are lots of sort of common themes. The Blake book talks about yeah. lots of similar stuff that's in, that's in that book and in other books as well. Then I read Stranger Than We Can Imagine, mm -hmm. which is a history of the 20th century, which we will draw on a bit today. So, again, could you please yeah. just sort of explain for listeners what prompted you to write that book? Yeah, I mean... I... I, I think what prompted me to write it was I'd, my first book was a book about Timothy Leary, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, and when I was researching Timothy Leary, I was shocked uh, to realize the way that Silicon Valley, the, the, you know, the whole personal computer revolution, the whole sort of uh, technological sort of Internet based world that we sort of came on, that Silicon Valley was where it is because that was the sort of hotbed of psychedelia in the 1960s and how many so ideas that were coming out of a psychedelic scene uh, were causing people to sort of go, well, actually, computers, if we had them ourselves, if we took them from, you know, the, the, the big institutions and we had personal computers, let's create personal computers and there'll be a tool for the mind. And, and to see the modern world emerging from this weird little, you know, uh, druggy subculture, was quite a surprise to me because that wasn't my understanding of the, the 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 normal narrative of the 20th century, which was very much based on you know uh, Hitler and Stalin and, and and so forth. So the idea was to to look again um, at the 20th century to try and understand it, because I was aware that for many people. Um, you know, there's the progression from the 19th century worldview into the 20th century. And then we get to the sort of postmodern sort of uh, era. And so many people go, oh, and then we went wrong. And they sort of try and scurry back and, and hide and and, uh, and and dismiss the the uh, the impact of postmodernism. And very few people sort of went through postmodernism and came out the other side to sort of where we are now, um, which you kind of need to do because... You know, it's it's we're a quarter, nearly a quarter of a way through the 21st century now, and you can't really make sense of it with 19th century eyes. You know, you nearly have to take on board what we learned in the 20th century, uh, and there was a real um, shift in uh, how we perceived ourselves as we moved from understanding the world in a hierarchical way uh, into this individualistic uh, way, and it sort of happened in all different. Um, areas of human endeavor really you, you could find it in in science uh with relativity you can find it in you know art with james joyce and modernism you can you can find it in politics with the collapse of empires with the, the notion that the emperor was this sort of this this fixed point where everything sort of made sense from um and the sense of ourselves it used to be that it was what we did what where where what our role was that mattered uh, and as how it didn't matter if we were like funny or good or, or 
hardworking or it mattered if we were a duke you know or a stable boy you know or a doctor or or whatever our position uh was was everything uh and that sort of that sort of fell away um in the second half of the 20th century we all became great individuals and individualism was the sort of um the 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 necessary uh corrective and it got to the extent that you know you got films like um those clint eastwood west ones where he was the man with no name yeah he was he was such an isolated individual he didn't even need a name and in, at the time we we're like oh that's so cool you know <laughs> he's such an individual he doesn't need a name um we've got we've come out the other side of that now i, th I think it's um it's certainly self-evident to the generation growing up that the, the concept of an individual is too limited to explain us you have to take on board our connections you have to take on board what we're sort of uh, you know our networks to understand what we're capable of doing uh, and how we sort of behave it's like um if you think of a hand say a hand you know and it, it wiggles and there's a poseable thumb and it's it's intricate and stuff like that um if you were to study a hand if you were to chop one off it wouldn't do anything it wouldn't do handy things you'd have <laughs> lost the handiness of it by taking it from the rest of the world you know it's 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 like the, the human body is um over 50 percent of the cells um by number rather than mass are not human various bacteria and things like that and they're doing stuff in our gut and, and so forth so if you were to take just a human just the human cells to study a human it wouldn't work it would just be dead it wouldn't function as a human you know the notion of taking something out of um uh, its environment just kills it it's 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 uh, it's it's too limiting a sort of a, a way of seeing the world uh, and that's where we're sort of coming out now. And so I, I see it a lot as um, the post-war generation uh, were sort of raised by TV, the TV generation, uh, as we were, you know. Uh, uh, and um, it kind of separates you. It's this sort of passive thing. You sort of sit on the sofa and you're all sort of passive. And there are people doing stuff and you don't influence them and you don't sort of connect with them. It doesn't matter what you're doing. They're separate from you. For the generation growing up in the 21st century, that's gone. They're all online. They can influence the things they're looking at. They're part of it. And the notion that you're separate from the rest of the world falls apart and, and, and disappears. And once, um, once you stop seeing yourself as separate and apart, you know, all of a sudden you become A, valid, but B, all the responsibilities are also yours. So the raising, the, the rises in anxiety and things like that in the young generations these days sort of makes sense in the, in this sort of network sort of uh, world that they're sort of growing up in. But they don't um, uh, like the difference between millennials and, and Generation Z is uh, over people like Greta Thun Thunberg, right? We would people like myself raised in the 20th century, you know, we'd hear about climate change. Uh, and we go, oh, that's terrible. Uh, and then we'd keep eating meat, you know, and flying on planes and, you know, buying, you know, SUVs and, and whatnot, because we were separate from it. We thought it didn't matter we, that what we did. It, that was, it was the problem of that other thing. There was the other and there was us. But for people growing up now, that separation's gone. They're part of it. 
So of course there's a huge rise in like veganism, and of course there's a, this the, uh, the 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 impetus to tackle climate change politically uh, is, is very much coming from people born in this this century. Uh, the 2017 general election, climate change was not mentioned by any of the major parties, with the possible exception of the Green Party. It just wasn't an issue. It just wasn't an issue. Uh, and then suddenly with the school strikes and Greta Thunberg, you know, we're sort of moving in the direction we're sort of sort of going now. It's a, it's a, it's a very significant change uh, in how we understand ourselves. And that's affecting how we sort of, uh, in you know, act in the world. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So it's a bit of a huge rant there. Sorry, James. I just went off. <laughs> you, have no, to, you have to forgive me. You got me on a, on a, on one of them subjects. <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, you can see where you can see why I sort of why I want to draw on these other books of yours because, like, like obviously, like the the future book is like informed by where we've just been and this whole mm. of the 20th century thing uh, and the changes that, that that we've undergone in that time and these generational changes that you're describing. I think are a really important part of this, of the, the sort of the background, um, you know, the context in which the education debate takes place. So, so that, if you like, that was sort of like a signposting part of the conversation where I just wanted to sort of to map out like some of the likely territory that we're going to cover, and we'll mm -hmm. come back to we'll come back to some of those ideas later on. But if I could pause that bit for now, because one of the things that I really like to do in this podcast is to get to know each guest and to understand like who it is that I'm speaking to mm. and just out of interest because we, we've talked about how sort of eclectic your work is and there are novels in your in your um you know back catalogue as well um would, how would you describe yourself I saw you describe someone as like a cultural historian or something would you would you go along with that I would actually uh, mainly because I don't have anything better <laughs> and um I often see myself described as a journalist right I'm not a journalist I've never earned money working as a journalist and I don't have the skills to be a journalist like if something happens in the world I'll think about it for a week and then be able to say something but I couldn't just immediately sort of do a, a hot take and I, I don't have the skills to be a journalist but because it's online everywhere I'm like it's it's almost like I've become officially a journalist and whenever I say to people oh I'm not actually a journalist they're like well I'm sorry you are because it says <laughs> so in your Wikipedia or, or, or something like that um uh, yeah, so uh, but I'm basically just a writer. I just see myself as a writer, as an as an author. Okay, and and you you do have a, an uncanny. I mean, I suppose there's a countercultural theme that runs through your through your work. There that is seems to, since maybe even starting with Blake and through mm. Timothy Leary, and you've just written the next books about the Beatles, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, which I guess I mean the the, the beat the beat part was that that their the initial seed of them was countercultural. Yeah. If if they, if they became culture. Yeah. Well, I, 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 yeah, but I kind of I, I write about the the culture and the counterculture. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, exactly. Like the, the 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 next book, it's about the Beatles and also James Bond, which, yes. which appeared on the same day in 1962. The, yeah. the Bond film. Um, and I kind of think it's just that a lot of the ideas that go on to shape the culture are first seen in the counterculture. That's the sort of the, the R&D department of, of our society. <laughs> uh, that's where the interesting things sort of come up. So that's why I sort of go to the counterculture quite a lot. But I, I try to be inclusive of all, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, and so so I'd like to just hear a bit more about you, first of all, and your own uh, childhood and your mm -hmm. own experience of education. Yeah, well, I went, was I grew up in North Wales, uh, I went to a comprehensive school called Elvid High School in Buckley. Um, 
and which is which is odd you know for uh for someone who's making a living as a writer that's that's very odd and I, I am very much outside of the um uh the accepted and standard uh educational background and it's only why, why do why do you say that well it's when you when you i mean i've earned a living writing books for the past 10 years so i'm sort of in this world um and you you very quickly become aware that it's assumed that if you're writing books like I am, non-fiction books, you have like you're supposed to have like a like a like a private income or or some some you know some personal wealth or a really well-paid job in academia, you know, or you're a landlord or you've got a spouse who's earning lots of money, right? The assumption that you can just earn a living writing non-fiction books just isn't there no one talks about it no one ever says this but it's there right and and once you've realized this when you they then go into waterstones and you look at the books on the shelves like a pet it clicks and you go oh now i see it now i see why those are the books sort of being written uh, and i think for me it's i'm able to sort of there's write the books that no one else seems to think of doing um I mean, things like the book, like the KLF, um, it's one of the, clearly one of the, the greatest music stories, you know, in, in the past so many decades. Uh, and just no one touched them for like it was 17 years. No one sat down and wrote the sort of KLF book. And it, it was just maddening to me. Why would no one do this sort of thing or, or the, or the Blake book that you're sort of talking about? I think I've got a slightly, I've got, I've got different blind spots to most other authors. And they often have similar blind spots and you can sort of recognize the bits they don't see. And so they're sort of leaving a huge fertile area of the good stuff to, to sort of someone like me to sort of, <laughs> sort of come along and play with. And, uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that their blind spots are wrong. In fact, in many ways, particularly the Oxbridge blind spot, right? Which when you're outside that world, you can sort of, you get to notice, you get, you sort of. Can we call it the hireling blind spot? Blake would have liked that very much, <laughs> but but you know what it's like. You, I mean, I've got a lot of friends who went to Oxford or Cambridge, uh, and, uh, and there's some smart and fascinating people uh, in that sort of thing. But when they tell you that they went there, like it's it's never a surprise, <laughs> right? It's never like, oh really? It's it's always oh yeah yeah. I see that now. Now that makes sense. So, yeah, that sort of that sort that sort of clicks, and there's sort of um an absence of doubt that they have that's kind that's kind of interesting yeah you know? um but their blind spot is probably the best blind spot to have if you're going to have a you know a successful career and and, and do well and have a good life so i'm not dismissing it you know it's it's great on that sort of level but i've got completely different blind spots which are you know attempting to find out as as we all should what what it is that we don't understand um but it it it, it, it means there's there's lots of stuff that's just not being tackled in in books that uh that's sort of left for people like me to sort of sort of come along with yeah okay so so let's go back to to your education so can you yeah. describe like what your school was like what what did you do after school uh, well from i would say it was just normal right i suppose everybody thinks that but i think statistically mine probably was normal it was a it was a fairly large comprehensive school uh in a small northwest town um and i was fine you know i've got no complaints about it in any way um i did my a levels there and then i went on to university went to liverpool to university at liverpool uh and uh, which i'm still very proud of 
you know, first person in your family to go to university and all that stuff. And it was it was the last year that you could get a grant to go to university. Um, so I'm, I'm that lucky. And so that's why. And if, if it'd been a year later, I just probably wouldn't have gone and I wouldn't have become a writer and I wouldn't be talking to you now. It's just I just tipped into wow. that last year. There you go. Because, yeah, because, you know, you don't if you don't come from because I, I was a. Uh, um, my dad died when I was very young, um, and so I was a free school meals kid. Um, and that sort of background, you just don't get into debt. Right? That's that's the bottom line. You don't get into debt because there's just nothing you can do if you do. That's the worst possible thing. So the idea of getting loads of student debt, I just wouldn't have done it. I just wouldn't have. You know, it's very, very different. Um, so, yeah, I was all basically very, very lucky in the timing uh, of it. Um, for, for me, I think most schools are like that. You'd watch like Grange Hill and you'd get it, you know, that, that's, that's the sort of normal sort of comprehensive, uh, education. Um, uh, and, and, and you learn to sort of get on with people and you learn to sort of, um, understand how people are. Nothing is expected of you. You know, you're not being pushed to anything. You know, there's, there's no sense that, oh, you're clever, you should go to, you know, Oxford or Cambridge or, or, or something like that. There was just, he was just in the system, he was spat out at the other side, you know, and you got your O levels and your A levels and, and whatever, and, and good luck to you. And um, uh, it's, it, it's, an, it's, I don't know, I think it's very underrepresented in our culture that sort of background mm. you do get very sick of like reading a book uh, about something that sounds interesting and then the the author decides to tell you a bit about his boarding school days for no apparent reason because he thinks it's you know interesting um once or twice it'd be fine but just at the endless sort of constant sort of um portrayal of education that has is not like yours uh in in our books in our films in our tv just does great after a while yeah absolutely and there's, there's an interesting bit in, in i think it was in watling street where you talk about the parallels between tom brown's school days and and hogwarts and like yes. the, 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 yeah. the archetypal the archetypal school stories that we still hear about are basically the boarding school experience of like 200 years ago yeah and it's because the people who went to those things are the people who are allowed to write the books yeah. you know Get, who get to write the books it's a it's a real shame you know yeah it's fascinating and so there's a there's a chapter in in watling street um so just i don't think we talked about watling street have we watling street mm. is this this other book that you wrote which is like a sort of like a history of britain as told by journey journeying along its oldest road which sort of goes from mm. dover up via canterbury through london and then ends up in north wales doesn't it and um, and along that route, you, you, there's a chapter on rugby. And did you live in rugby as a mm. young child for a while? I was born in rugby. Yeah, yeah. I, I left when I was three, so I have no real memory of it. But yeah, that's where I was born. Yeah, and so and so, like education comes out in that chapter as well because of obviously mm. you know of rugby school. Rugby school. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and yeah, and I, again, it's you can't when you're writing a book about England and Wales as Watling Street was, um, you sort of have to tackle the public school system because it of its oversized imprint on you know on our government and our education and on 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 the culture um but it's you're you're onto a bit of a hiding there because it's people who went to those sort of schools will 
not like it, will not like people talking about them. And they will be very dismissive of you in the book. Not for those, they won't say, oh, I didn't like it that you insulted public schools. Um, they will say, you know, they'll just ignore you or, so, or just something like that. And for everyone else who didn't go to those things, you know, it's also obvious. It's also obvious what the problems with the country are. You know, that it's just depressing to sort of, you know, go go over them again. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if it's. I mean, it is a bit obvious. You're right, and like, there's definitely a, a. It's clearly that we've got a posh problem. You know, if you if you yeah. saw like Jacob Rees-Mogg on Newsnight the other night, like defending the indefensible, like he's in some comedy sketch. Yeah. Um. The it's uh. You wrote in that chapter on rugby, you write, it's difficult to watch the goings-on in the Houses of Parliament and not think there is something very wrong with private education. Mm. The sort of, the, like, the proud braying, um, the sort of, the lack of, the lack of shame in, like, behaving in this very sort of boorish way. Yeah, it's, it's the, um, it's the competition that, that is so ingrained into sort of how they see the world. Um, the, the the desire to be best, the need to be best, um, that is, it's very 19th century. It's back in the days that we still thought that the world ran on the survival of the fittest and, and being the strongest. Now we've moved, you know, ecologists will tell you and uh, anthropologists, that's that's not the story of the evolution of, of mankind. We're, we're the most cooperative people. We're the, we're the people who had language, we people who could plan and share and work together and that's why we've been so successful but they're, they're they're still on the sense of well they're taught as children at their best and so there's there was horrible cognitive dissonance between that image of themselves and reality uh and it just sort of plays out again and again in the sort of you know the, the, the public sphere um it's as it's doing at the moment, you know, as it's doing at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, have you got have you got any thoughts on like there's a bit in in I think it's Watling Street again where you're talking about land reform mm. and about how you know the way in which land is owned and the way in which land is is handed down and this is obviously sort of like is what sits behind this sort of private school system, right? The private school system is sort of reproducing this these very deep-rooted social divides mm. um, and it's partly is partly um, signified by for example like only referring to to young people by their surname uh, in those schools that they sort of yes. belong to that family and often that th those those names they're referred to by the by the part of the country that they were that their ancestors were given right like the duke yeah. of westminster or the duke of wherever um at the very at the very aristocratic end of this spectrum um and so you can see how how you know like lots of these ideas tie together but in, on, when you're talking about land reform you, you, you're talking about quite a clear idea as to how we can sort of transition away from where we are now into into public ownership of land yeah um, and i was wondering whether you've done any sort of similar thinking about because you talk about private school private education quite a bit also in watling street you were talking about a particular stretch of watling street in the midlands where you're talking about mm. people like shakespeare who like there was lots of academics who were saying like this essentially a working-class guy could not possibly have written all these plays. It must have been written yeah. by a pseudonym. It must have been Bacon. Yeah. It must have been six... It must have been a lord or possibly six aristocrats or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And Alan Moore as well, who, you, yeah. who I think rightly regard as perhaps the greatest living English writer, but who is not widely acknowledged um, mm -hmm. as, as holding that, that, um, that title because 
you know, he's a really working class guy with a thick, thick Midlands accent. And he's yeah, been... and if you if you saw like when, for instance, the Guardian attempted to review his novel Jerusalem, uh, and they were just unable to. You know, it, it was the, 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 the sort of inbuilt snobbery was very, very uh, apparent there. Yes, and Tommy Flowers, I talk about it at, um, when I get past the Milton Keynes. And, uh, yeah. geez. Can you talk about Tommy Flowers briefly? About that? That's a fascinating little chapter from Bletchley Park. Yes, Bletchley Park. We all know um, of Turing from that. Uh, we know a lot about, you know, Bletchley Park now, and it is, you know, fascinating stuff. Uh, so I was surprised when I looked into it that there was still lots of, you know, unexplored areas of the things. And in particular, there's this guy, Tommy Flowers, who was this just um, uh, working class cockney. He did uh, engineering at night school or something like that. And he worked for the post office. And he basically invented the computer, as in the programmable digital computer and he's just not in the history books uh, at all um uh, and he he the amount of um uh the amount he was dismissed by the people at bletchley park and then went away and built this computer which was colossus uh, regardless uh, and then after the war it was all secret and he wasn't allowed to say anything in the history book said that i think eniac was the first um you know programmable digital computer which is built in america so for a person to basically invent the computer and help you know d-day and the the, the course of uh, world war ii and fall out of the history books books and, and be ignored is just very very striking um yeah yeah, that, that was that, Tommy Flowers is one of the people we should be celebrating, and there's there's so many. But it's not really about it's not about wealth. This it's about inequality of opportunity. Yeah. Um, it's very easy if you're complaining about you know the public school system to fall into this oh it's the rich they're bad sort of sort of way and that's that's doesn't really get to it i mean one of the things i think is quite curious is a couple of people have said to me from read after they've read my books they've said have you gone to a steiner school because like you you come across like <laughs> someone went to a Steiner. Like you think like someone who went to a Steiner. this is pe often people who went to a steiner right. school think i'm one of them um because of you know uh, you know how I view the world and 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 uh, the sort of questions that sort of I ask or how I go about things, um, and obviously I'm not as I say I'm from you know this bog standard comprehensive in North in North Wales, um, but the Steiner School although it is a private school and you know costs how much and all that sort of stuff, they're not taught this this need to win this this the the. This competitiveness, this this sense of superiority and competitiveness isn't sort of driven into them, so they do come out very very sort of different uh, to you know the, the the public schools that we're sort of talking about. Um, it's so it's not just it's not really the financial inequality of the public schools that is the problem. Uh, it's it's the mindset that's that's built into them. Yeah. Um, yeah, 
that, that I think is 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 the issue. Absolutely. I remember when Osborne was the chancellor. I can't remember the metaphor he used, but he was talking about the global race or something. It was like we're we're sort of we're competing in the global race. It's like yeah. all the countries are competing against one another. And so you're, I think that you're right that people who have been through this private school system are not really up for talking about this. And maybe maybe mm. it is obvious to other people, but I do think that it sort of needs saying that that it's a significant problem with the way in which we're so divided as a country that we have a school system that is that so clearly just like is not an even distribution of resources. And yeah. like, I, I I work with some with some independent schools and private schools, and they're they're wonderful places. Like they're really interesting places, filled with really passionate, very hardworking teachers. Um, and they 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 are there's there is something about them that is almost sort of like hyper real like I, I remember sort of yeah. just like seeing little vignettes and seeing the way that the kids interact and you just think god that could have been off like, in, on some sort of like you know like um soft focus you know like sunday evening drama like it's just it's, it's so <laughs> idyllic you know and i yeah. there's, there's one that i went to where there's like there's there's this sort of disused piano by a by a lake and and the kids are just lounging around like it just looks like ridiculously idyllic. Um, and these things you would sort of want it if, if it was possible to have that for every for every kid, you would want that. Um, but obviously mm. that isn't the case. And we clearly have this this situation where we have like and I, and I think that you talked about this in one of the podcasts that I heard you do, that what we're talking about here is a waste of talent. It's like a bonfire yeah. of the talents. And if you look at like the, yeah. the, the, the proportion of kids, I think it's roughly seven percent from memory of people that go to private school but if you look at the percentage of private school alumni who are in who are in like the judicial system who are in parliament who um are in uh, higher higher echelons of of um of the journalism and what have you and and also yeah. in, in in sport increasingly and in culture and, and in um in in pop music for example like that used to be a very working class thing in 80s and definitely very dominated by by public school alumni and i was wondering you know following the last the last olympics there was like working class kids with tattoos winning winning medals for doing bmx i was like i wonder if private schools are going to start like building bmx ramps <laughs> in the in the in their cloisters uh, yeah they, it's it is extraordinary the extent to which uh, disreputable careers such as acting uh, of being you know taken over in my lifetime you know in the in the, the uh, there was that great leveling in the in the 1960s when all these these you know actors like michael kane and you know richard burton all these sort of working class actors came through and it was um it was thrilling and now it's just dominics it's just a load of dominics are sort of taken and often they can be quite good but there's 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 a, there's a when you know when only a, a small section uh are are able to sort of take certain roles the, the quality of the people in that small section is going to be down i mean i i just I, I just the last the last foreign secretaries right the list of the last foreign secretaries uh, in the uk is like liz trust dominic rab jeremy hunt right yeah and boris johnson this ain't the best. This ain't the best of us. Absolutely. By by, by a long shot. We're, we're sort of so um, we're weakened by this this inability to um, use the talents in the country. The the you know hard work, uh, dedication, imagination, intelligence. These things are spread equally across England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. Right? They're not centred 
in the children of the rich. Yeah. They're just not. And 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 so when opportunity only go to that small section, it is we are a handicapped island because of that. Yeah, yeah. And and it does need saying this, and 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 it's something that Labour were saying. Interesting in the in the last in the twenty nineteen uh, manifesto, there was like, I think it wasn't to abolish um, private schools, but it was to like get them to start paying tax as a as the, mm. the first. Oh, actually, no, maybe it was. I think it might have. They might have had a a policy to to actually um, to abolish them, and I, I I doubt that that's going to feature in the next Labour manifesto. The party seems to be changing quite a lot. But I was just wondering. Yeah. So the reason I mentioned land reform is because you sort of you've obviously done some thinking about how we might transition from where we are to where we might have a more egalitarian picture. I wonder if you've yeah, done the land... same thinking about the private school system and and how we might transition to a more level playing field. I I don't have a, a a neat easy answer for that. I just think we need to stop. Uh, <laughs> the best way I can put it is we need to stop uh, training young people to be <laughs> sociopaths. <laughs> that's probably that's probably not the best best way of sort of putting it. But I mean, if you look at, I mean, I'm I'm obviously straying into the um, into the world of stereotypes and broad strokes here. But you know, Eton is very. Uh, famous as this factory on the Thames that turns out prime ministers and murderers. Now, the amount of people from Eton who go on to be a murderer or like attempt murders, yeah, people like Jeremy Thorne attempted to have someone killed, but they didn't quite make it. But there's, st- there's still that, that mindset of, oh, I've got a problem, I'll have that person killed. Right? <laughs> this is not... It's, it's a very, very, you know, most schools don't produce any murderers. Most schools, are. they may, you know, there may be a drunk driver, there may be, you know, there's a few things. The idea that a school produces a significant number of people who are involved in premeditated murder is weird. And it's is, this, now, is, this, is there data on this? I've not come across this before. I, 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 wrote, I wrote a thing about it a while. I'd have to dish it out and, and look for you. But just in the past 20 or 30 years, there was just too many murders, <laughs> basically. Um, right. And now... We, we uh, talked now, about this. So we talked about something the other day about, in particular, about boarding schools and about how like the, the psychological impact of being taken away from your family yes, at a very young age and, and put into a boarding school. That that seems to be an unhealthy thing to do, you know. Definitely. I mean, this is, as we mentioned earlier, I'm writing this book about Bond and the Beatles. And a a theme that keeps running through this is the loss of a parent or or, um, uh, pretty much everyone except George Harrison was not raised by both their parents in in this wider story. and whereas, you know, both John Lennon and Paul McCartney, their mothers died when they were teenagers. Um, it's much more of an issue for people trying to understand Lennon than it is McCartney, because McCartney had this uh, healthy family life around him, his father, his brother, his, his wider families. He was supported. Uh, Lennon was um, sent away. Lennon was exiled. Uh, he was he was taken away from his mother and given to another member of his family. Uh, and this is very similar to Ian Fleming, who was taken from his family and put in boarding school. And they were both damaged in a very, very sort of similar way. Uh, and when they both then lost parents, um, 
they didn't they couldn't react to it in the the sort of healthy is probably not the right way to say it, but in the way that Paul McCartney did in in the way that they sort of um, were able to grow up um uh and and, and as as you know emotionally sort of healthy adults in the way that Paul McCartney was this this sense of being taken away from a family and or your family giving you away or your family sending you away mm. does seem to have uh, uh, an impact on a lot of people that runs very, very deep. And there's a lot of work into what's called boarding school syndrome that looks at the impact of this and how people never really feel at home and never really able to trust. Um, uh, but it's it's more than that. It's more that the sense that that they would they would report what was people thought was just homesickness, uh, but it was deeper. It was more like grief that they weren't able to sort of process uh, the notion that their family went, I'm sending this this away, and then that they didn't have that sort of loving, nurturing home life. Um, then the damage that's done to to so many people, mm. um, and then you and then it just goes to the top of the the you know the political. Uh, establishment and these damaged people thinking you know in these ways attempting to sort of steer the country so it's a little going through a rant about the state of the world i'm afraid no, but that's, <laughs> I'm very much... well, it's all, this all connects right like this is i think that that we're that i that for a long time ago whenever i started thinking about the state of the world, I would just find myself delivered back to education's doorstep every time. Mm. And rather than thinking that the, that, the, that the education system is producing the problems of the world, I don't think that that's the right way to think of it. But if we had a different way of, edu of thinking about education, we would be producing very different kinds of people and we would see a very different planet. Yeah. And it's clearly the case, just to follow that through line that you were sort of going down there. Like Again, we're talking in stereotypes here, but... The, the, the people talk a lot about attachment, right? And like, like you know, the, the people have different attachment styles. And mm -hmm. there's this theory that I've read about that, that young people who are taken away from their family in that way, they attach to the institution. And they even refer yes. to it as the alma mater, don't they? Like the, the, it's like yes. this, this maternal sort of thing that they, that they are attached to and that they will preserve at all costs. Mm -hmm. And so their mindset becomes like, let's keep the show on the road. And you can sort of see the way that that plays out like just to give you an example of that I came across fairly recently, I was listening to a podcast interview with Rory Stewart, you know, the, the Tory MP. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, former Tory MP. And when he came into politics, he um, he thought, well, you know, I'm clearly this very able guy. He may or may not have been a spy. It seems to be a, a question mark. <laughs> it's really interesting whenever he's asked he was that. totally, totally a spy. Yeah, exactly. He's I'm, he's just, that, he's I'm like, just going to walk across Afghanistan for no reason. <laughs> he, yeah, exactly. So so um, may or may or may not but probably was. Um, but anyway, had this rich and very experienced person, clearly very capable, very articulate, and he thought, well, I can come into politics and, you know, so shake things up. And when, in his early years as, a, as an MP, there was some vote um, about something to do with the House of Lords reform, and there was a, the, the, there was a party whip um, had been issued, and he was going to defy it. He was like, I don't think that mm. that's right. He was going to vote with his conscience. And George Osborne stood at the gate of the lobby and said, if you go through that door, you won't be promoted for five years. Um, and Rory Stewart <laughs> went through the door anyway. And indeed, yeah. he wasn't promoted for five years. And yeah. Osborne repeatedly and publicly reminded him of that fact at every opportunity. Because it's like, you don't, get to, mm. you don't get to be a person of conscience here. Like, we, like we're yeah. all about keeping the show on the road and preserving 
essentially that we're serving the interests of the party and the party yeah. just wants to be in power for indefinitely. And the Tories are really quite good at doing that. They've dominated British politics for 300 years um, mm. because they have that sort of ruthless strand. But it's all it's like it's, it's like they're con connected to the to the institution. And how do you become a, a a, a, a cabinet minister, you know, you, you, you show that you're a safe pair of hands. You show that you're yeah. going to vote against your conscience and in, in line yeah. with the party, with the party interests so many times that you've compromised yourself hopelessly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you were talking about the recent foreign secretaries and we could throw the net, cast the net wider than that to the whole cabinet. Like these, this is not the, this is not a cabinet of the talents. And we've got this, this machine that sort of seems yeah. to filter out people who you would want Absolutely. to have. <laughs> who you would want to have in positions of power who are going to act in line with their values and with their conscience and with what they believe to be the right thing to do mm. rather than, you know, being attached to the institution. And so you can, like I say, we're talking in very broad generalities here, but I think that there's more than a dollop of truth in this, that you can see the pipeline from private school education and yeah. the, the, all of the, the stuff that goes with that um, through, to, through to... Because they were designed for the empire. The private school system, if you, you go back to the Tom Brown school day sort of uh, and, and the traditions that sort of come through, it was designed to make people who you could send to the other side of the world who would then be able to say, well, I know better than all the people who live here and I will rule them. Right. To have that mentality. That was what they were designed for. Um, we don't need that anymore. We really don't need that anymore. But it's it's just sticks and ling. Because, I mean. I'm not, um, you know, I, 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 I'm not a, 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 I don't believe in utopia, right? When I'm writing about the, the future, uh, you know, I, the future will always be a combination of good things and bad things. It will never be a, a, a clear dystopia or a clear utopia. There's this constant shift of, it's an, it's, it's an imperfect world um, and good things will happen and bad things will happen. Um yeah, I, I don't sort of, and when I write about Britain, and I do write a lot about Britain, and I do love Britain, uh, and I'm not proud to be British, but I'm grateful to be British. I'm, I'm pleased that I come from here. But I don't think, oh, it's this, you know, perfect, great, wonderful, glorious sort of place. It's a place with good things and bad mm. things. And there are things I love about it, and there are things I just despair about it. Um, and... Um, I don't expect that to change. It will always have good things and bad things. And my approach is just to sort of just celebrate the good things and, and just get deeper into those. Um, but the, the sort of uh, willingness of a lot of English people to support the class system, the sort of the forelock tugging sort of gene that seems to be so sort of common, yeah. the, the, uh, the, the, the willingness to sort of elect people like Boris Johnson and, and things like that. And to, and to say, what was that person who someone interviewed who said, oh, I elected him because he seems more like a normal working-class guy <laughs> yeah. than that Jeremy yes. Corbyn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it is, but it, it does seem to be part of the British, you know, makeup. to, um, you know, we're, we're much mocked over uh, abroad for this sort of forelock tugging sort of aspect of the sub, sort of slightly subservient sort of um, English character. Um, yeah, I don't know what to do about that except to sort of 
you to do work on education. It's so hard, isn't it? There's something about the about like like listening to someone like Jacob Rees Mogg or or even Johnson, like even in the with the mess that he's making of things, there is something that's sort of strangely reassuring about that about that accent. I think it might be something to do with the particular with the, the the effect that that accent has on people, that received pronunciation, it's sort of hypnotic, and it and it stops you from listening to the actual words that they're saying, and it's kind of this balm, this soothing sort of like you're you're in safe hands, everything's okay here, and that's also it's something that comes through the education system. There was a really interesting um, documentary a while ago. It was on the BBC. Um, called How to Break into the Elite. Mm. And it was following different kids who, who'd graduated through the university system. And some of them were working class kids who'd got like a double first from Cambridge, you know, yeah, yeah. very highly accomplished, but couldn't get a job for love nor money because they crumbled in interviews. Yeah. And other kids were getting like a 2-2 from, you know, a red brick university, but would wall straight into like an internship at, at Goldman Sachs or something. And they were asking these employers, you know, like, what is it? Why are you giving jobs to these kids and not to the others? And they used this word polished. Yes. which is they're like they just seem more polished and yeah. you could argue that that's just like a, a a euphemism for posh you know they they just seem posh but there is something that's like what is that that the, the stellar artois thing like straight like reassuring the expensive you know like when 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 a client yeah. phones up your company and you and you've got this sort of very confident like soft gentle you know received pronunciation brogue you can see how that's going to be more attractive to your clients than than to have somebody who's stuttering and sputtering even if they're yeah, absolutely well, got a brilliant mind, and so, mm. I mean, it's a tra it's attractive to people who are like that, who are the people who are hiring. Um, for me, I'm not into it. <laughs> I'm slightly outside of all this sort of stuff, um, and yeah, I'm not so keen. It's um, I don't know. I I was fairly lucky for, and I went through my I went to University of Liverpool. And did a degree in computers right. um and then in the 90s i got a job as a runner in a tv company in london and so i came down to london and that was my first encounter with people like that uh, and it was largely staffed by public school boys on cocaine this <laughs> company that i work for i probably shouldn't name it i, I was lost i just couldn't get my head around it because they were just coming up with these ideas they were so uninspired and, and, and you know, simple and, and just boring. And they were so proud of them and they were all congratulating <laughs> each other. And they thought they were, you know, they were sort of, they were Picasso as far as they saw themselves. They were great creative, you know, wonder kids. And I just thought, well, it must be me. I must be missing, you know, something. I don't get it. Um, this is, I just don't understand these people. I don't understand these, this world. Uh, and, you know, I, I I sort of fell out of that company fairly, fairly quickly. Uh, and it's only now I'm older and now I have more experience of different aspects of society that I can look back and go, oh, they were actually quite idiot, idiotic and, uh, you know, they weren't the talents that they, 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 they saw themselves. Um, but when you don't, when you just encounter that for the first time, you know, the, 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 the mutually reinforcing self-belief of the whole sort of system is a powerful spell mm. you know it's very very difficult to sort of 
to, to sort of get around. Yeah, they, well, lots of the work that I do is around oracy, that spoken language, speaking and listening, and how, how can we get kids in every... One of the things that I discovered only fairly recently was that at Eton, so they've got, they've got a, a debating chamber at Eton, it's called Jafar Hall, um, mm. and it, it, it costs £17 million to build this thing, which is incredible. Like, if you can build a whole secondary school for that with a gym and yeah. everything. So, so like £17 million for one, basically one room. And if you look at a photo of it, it basically looks like the House of Commons. It's just like there's rows and rows of wooden benches facing each other. Mm. And what I discovered fairly recently is that the, 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 the type of debating is literally called British parliamentary debating. And though the individuals who are arguing for the motion are referred to as the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister. Uh-huh. And likewise, <laughs> on the opposition, they're referred to as the Leader of the Opposition and Deputy and so on. So they're literally role-playing for when they get to run the country, yeah. you know, which is a good idea. You know, we should rehearse such things. But it's like, as we've just been talking about, if we really want, a, you know, a coalition of the talents, we should be playing that game in every school on the planet from, from an early age. Um, and that that isn't currently happening. Um, and and it's not yeah, just I'm... about debating. There's all kinds of aspects of oracy. And you could argue that debating is a is a part of the problem because it turns conversation into something that can be won or lost. And that grandstanding yes. and having a silver tongue can help you to sort of confound your opponent who might actually be right, but but the the apparent mm. victory is yours. You know. That's it. Because you know, the, the debating in theory is to find out the truth that's what it's supposed to be there for to debate different ideas and work out what's real um but the system that you're talking about it's set up where they're often told to debate from a position they don't believe in and they're taught to to win the debate even when they don't believe in it so we've moved a long way from this desire to sort of find out the truth uh it's into, into this sort of Again, it's that competition, it's that competitive sort of underpinning of all all this. There are ways that you could raise children to try and find out the truth. Right. And it would it would not be competitive. Yeah. You know, it would be using the best of of all those around. And um, no one's building 17 million dollar halls to sort of find the truth in those ways. Hello folks, a quick bit of Rethinking Education news, if I may. Later this year, we're hosting the inaugural Rethinking Education conference, what I very much hope will be the first of many. We have some really exciting keynote speakers lined up and lots of brilliant talks and workshops. Speaker applications are now open, so if you'd like to apply to do a talk or run a workshop or something of that nature, get your thinking hat on and please do follow the link in the show notes. This conference will be held in London on Saturday the 17th of September, but if you're in a far-flung corner of the world, you don't get off the hook that easily, I'm afraid, because there will also be an online element to this conference and we are accepting video presentations. And if you would like to come along, we're running a 20% discount for friends of the podcast. Just enter the promo code REPOD20, that's R-E-P-O-D 20, all lowercase apart from the numbers, obviously, because they don't come in lowercase. Secondly, if you enjoy these conversations as much as I do and you would like to express your gratitude in some way, you can now become a patron of the podcast should you feel so disposed. There are various benefits associated with doing so, including a searchable written and audio transcript of every episode to date, 
so you can go back and find any juicy quotes or references really easily. You can also get a copy of Fear is the Mind Killer, the book about learning to learn that I co-authored with my amazing friend and comrade Kate McAllister. And at the highest tier, you can access a series of four 90-minute recorded workshops on self-regulated learning, which you can enjoy in the privacy of your own home or share with colleagues as a stimulus for professional development. To support the show, please visit patreon.com forward slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D again. Alternatively, if you would like to buy me a pint or a coffee or perhaps even a pint of coffee, then you can do so by visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. Again, there are links in the show notes. Finally, if you haven't yet joined the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, the 500-strong community that's grown up around this podcast, firstly, have a word with yourself, and secondly, follow the link in the show notes. The water really is lovely. Do join us. Okay, let's get back to painting a positive vision of the future on this ridiculous planet of ours with John Higgs. Okay, so so, so we we went into a bit of a private school rabbit hole there. But let's sort, let's sort of reemerge. Just when we started this by sort of asking you about your own your own um, childhood and your own experience of education, and something else that I'm really interested in in talking to people about in this podcast is this idea of significant learning, mm-hmm. which Carl Rogers first wrote about, and he talked about significant learning as being learning that yeah is significant that changes you in some way, that changes the behaviour of the individual, that changes the course of your life in some way. So I just wonder, as you look back, are there any sort of key moments of significant learning? I'd be interested to hear about, for example, how you went from being a runner to doing what you do now. Like, what are the key moments? Was it a conversation that you had? Like, what is what are the key things that have that have shaped the course of your life? Yeah, um, people really. I think it would be outside of education. I can't really point to anything in the education that I've had that's had those sort of moments. Yeah, that's often the case. But there's certainly been people I've met and 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 got to know that have been uh, had those sort of um, impacts on me Um, because we're still, you know, trying to figure it out. We're trying to sort of make sense of where we are in the world around us. Uh, That that doesn't stop when you sort of leave school Uh, and you you do meet people. I mean, for me, uh, an important one was this old beat writer called Brian Barrett, who's sadly died about a decade ago now. Um, He's much missed. He was he was a wild one. but fascinating and he saw the world in a very sort of different way uh and his world was his story was just this total adventure you know and that that led to me writing the timothy leary book because he was friendly with timothy leary and when timothy leary escaped from jail and was captured by the black panthers in algeria and then escaped to switzerland all the all the drama i don't know if you know the timothy leary story Um, but it's it's insane insane. he was busted out of prison by the weathermen wasn't he he was yes yes wild life and then and then the black panther party uh was supposed to be looking after him in algiers because they were the they they had the american embassy in algeria at the time it's just a crazy (laughs) crazy sort of sort of uh hyper um oh it's just mad it's it's it's, it's a fantastic i'm really story. looking forward to reading uh, and that he'd, book. He'd, he'd been part of part of all this and um uh it was meeting people like that because i think for, for me what all this boils down to is enthusiasm 
it's like it doesn't matter what the enthusiasm is for as long as you have enthusiasm you 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 get interested in aspects of the world and you want to find out about them and you want to sort of and understand them uh, and my books are always written from this this this, this sense of enthusiasm that there's something something worth exploring here and um and it's very very silly. and if an education system can nurture enthusiasm then the kids are going to be fine but it's if they stamp down on it and crush it i know i know many people who talk about their school experience as just crushing their you know their sense of enthusiasm for literature or 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 for anything like that um that's where that's where the problem is yeah but that uh back to your question um those moments didn't come from education for me but i don't feel that um my education was lacking um in any way you know i, I was just sort of taught the basics i was sort of taught how to learn um and great that that'll do me nicely <laughs> and so was that the, the first book you wrote was the timothy leary one was it yes and so because you can really write like was that something that you'd done much of before or did you no it was a real it was um the timothy leary one having spent uh, you know a few years hanging out with this brian barrett uh, guy who i was talking about um he would tell all these stories about timothy leary and they were just amazing and then when you'd hear leary mentioned in the in the press or uh, in in the media or culture in any way it would it was like the context had gone or it was i or it was just wrong or they just missed the point or and I, for years i, I would go oh, someone needs to write a book about timothy leary for god's sake it's just the most amazing story uh, and then after a couple of years, there's just the dawning realization of, oh, it's me. Oh, it falls to me. Oh, Jesus Christ. I had no idea if I can sort of do this. And it was, I'd never written anything of length at all before. And so there was no reason to believe I could sort of get away with it. Um, other than doing is the only way you learn. You know, you can't prepare yourself for writing books you just have to start writing books uh, and you have to be prepared to edit a lot and you have to be prepared to go over your stuff and just throw it out and, and do it better um, in fact in many ways I see myself more as an editor than, than a writer because if you see if you saw my first drafts you would just be embarrassed to know me but you know hopefully by the time they, they reach the, the shelves of Waterstones you know I could be I could be proud of them you know? yeah I'm very familiar with that I only write about education really mainly anyway um mm. but absolutely this editing is like 90 percent of it uh, and it's really hard it's so hard to edit when you've written like a sort mm. of a hundred thousand words and you need to get it down to 80 even like you can't hold it all in your head like like I remember no. sometimes I was doing I did a PhD and I would sort of had had really quite a sort of like a grueling. They do a thing called an upgrade driver where you have to sort of you know take apart your ideas and get them in shape before this whole thing you know mm -hmm. before this whole thing really really grows legs. And I remember I was giving this feedback and I had to just sit before my computer for about a week and I was just staring at it and was just going I don't even know where to begin. It was just this sheer cliff face. I don't have <laughs> any purchase on this at all. I just. I've got no, and I don't know what happened. I think that just the process of staring at it, I think parts of it started to diffuse in, and, and somehow I started to find little bits of threads that I could tug at, and then the whole thing would unravel. But it's very hard. Yeah, and I can keep about 
three quarters of a book in my head at any one time. That's what fits, about three quarters of a book. So when you're writing it chapter by chapter, I'm fine. But as my wife will tell you, when I come to, you know, edit it at the end, uh, I just turn into just a shuffling zombie for a few months <laughs> and I can't answer questions and I don't even, I'm sure my name is at times. I'm that sort of, uh, what did I say? Oh God, she'd asked me a question and I meant to reply yes or something like that. And I'd say, and instead I just said, okie cakey. <laughs> and so she refers to it as when I'm in the okie cakey sort of state. So, and she, and she, and she knows it passes. So she's, she's very accepting. She's, very wonderful woman she you know she puts up with me in these sort of states um and and then the problem is then you then have to go and talk about these books uh and you might have written two or three books since then and you've got no idea what's in them <laughs> um and it's you know that um uh sean connery in, in indiana jones and the last crusade you know he writes things in his book so he doesn't have to remember them yeah you, as a writer i'm like that i'm very much like that uh and often i'll be in an interview with someone talking about uh, a book a few you know a, a few books back and i've just no idea what they're talking about because i can't remember anything like that all right <laughs> well okay. i'm gonna put that to the test now because because uh, i'd like to i'd like to go back into that that journey that we sort of that did this this um historical narrative if you like that we're sort of like in the middle of at the mm. moment um like <laughs> in the middle of poised <laughs> between the, the past and the future you might say um so i want to start with the the 20th century book just uh, we're not going to go into this in huge de mm. depth you'll be pleased to hear but there are a couple of ideas that i just think are were, were news to me first of all and and i just think that are fascinating and also potentially important Mm. And one of them is um, the omphalos. Yeah. Right. So that's not a word that I had come across before. Could you please just begin by explaining, like, what is an omphalos? Yeah. Well, I, I start. Uh, this is stranger than we can imagine. My book about the twentieth century. I start by talking about this notion of the center of the world, um, as a way of explaining how the world was viewed at the end of the nineteenth century, uh, and every culture throughout time has had this concept of the omphalos. Like for the ancient Greeks, it was the Temple of Delphi. That was the center of the world. Uh, for the Ro Romans, it was Rome. All roads lead to Rome, you know. But, you know, the Aboriginal Japanese, it was Mount Fuji. The Sioux Indians, it was the Dakota Hills. This concept that there's one point, uh, which is the fixed point, which all the world revolves around and everything can be measured from. And at the end of the 19th century, it was um, Greenwich, the meridian sort of line at Greenwich. The whole world was measured from from uh, this point at Greenwich. And there was a big um, international conference where all the countries of the world decided to adopt GMT, Greenwich Mean Time, as the sort of their the standard sort of form of measurement um, of time and whatnot. And um, I think that was the couple of countries abstained it was it was very much already a sure deal because america had taken it on and most countries used gmt on their shipping maps so it was always going to happen but i think it was a couple of countries and one was france and france they either voted against or abstained because they wanted point zero uh the zero point which is uh um, it's just in front of notre dame in in paris uh it's in the pavement is this this sort of silver looking sort of star 
which is the centre of the French world, and everything is measured from zero points. It's very close to uh, Shakespeare and Company, if you know that wonderful English language bookshop. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and it just sort of highlights the sense that this fixed point, which all the the world is measured from, is arbitrary. There's no genuine quality of centre of the universeness to anywhere. It's just a cultural need to sort of say, well, we'll have that. And any any particular point could be the centre of the world, could be the envelope if everyone sort of agreed to it. And the 20th century was a sort of a process of realising that there was no such thing as a fixed point from which the the uh, the world can be made sense of. Now, Einstein was a, obviously a huge part of, uh, of, of this. Um, but also the modernist art movement was... Uh, about trying to find different perspectives on on things, and then we talked earlier about the, the the concept of the emperor, which was a political fixed point, sort of, or the empress sort of uh, dissolved, and so we were sort of, so this sort of hierarchical fixed uh, way of seeing the world sort of collapsed in 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 front of you know modernism and and relativity and uh, quantum mechanics and all all these sort of sort of um, really slightly inhuman. Uh, 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 in, quite incomprehensible ways of sort of seeing the world and the sense of panic that, that came from, from the loss of these simple certainties. Uh, yeah. The world got much more complicated and we sort of had to adapt to it. Yeah, well, that's what really struck out, struck out at me. And, and the, the Einstein thing was an important bit. I don't know if you can remember this, because like you say, it was a few books ago, but there's a really good bit in that book about the floating cup of tea about how I, I think oh, yes. you could do justice to that. <laughs> this idea that if there's a, I can't remember it that well either, but if there's, a, if there's a cup of tea that's floating towards you in space and it goes past you, there's no way of knowing whether it went past you or whether you went past it, because mm. both of those things are true in some mm. sense. And therefore, so, so, like, so we lost, and, and it, you can sort of imagine that like psychologically, it's important to have an on for loss. <laughs> you sort of need there to be some sort of fixed point, some yeah. cornerstone. Like it seems important. <laughs> like there's a sort of like an invisible umbilical cord to your sense of psychological well-being. That yeah. uh, that there is something in the middle of all of this that that we can sort of orientate ourselves around. And it seems like you were talking about like in a in a whole range of ways. We saw it in, like you were saying in in the art world, in science, in literature, mm. things that were considered to be. Just like like straight, you know, straightforwardly, you know, but points of reference got lost, and it yeah. felt like we became lost at sea. Definitely, and, it's, and when quantum mechanics turned up, you know, that really put the icing on the cake. And even things, even things like Freud, you know, the, the notion of the the subconscious, the idea there was no longer the sense that we were this rational sort of mind, sort of behaving rationally. No, there was all this sort of unknown, all this, this huge sweeps of unknown sort of uh, swept in. Um, and this, the old cer- all the certainties fell away, basically. Um, uh, there's a lot in la- about language, uh, which I won't go into here, but in, in every different sort of uh, aspect. You know, beginning of the 19th century, we sort of thought we knew how things worked. You know, we had the fixed pillars of science and uh, monarchy and empire and uh, things that people just didn't sort of question. And there was a sense that we would still find out more, but... The, the more that we find out will make sense. Like we had the um, periodic table and we didn't know all the elements, but we knew that we'd find more elements and they'd just sort of fit in. 
into, into our, our, our rigid structure of understanding them or our, our taxonomy of, of the natural world, the, uh, uh, our, the, 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 the system of understanding flora and fauna. We'd find new animals and plants, but they'd fit into this sort of thing. Um, it was it was comfortable. Uh, it was comprehensible. Um, it was comforting. And it all just got blown away by the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. And you can see the way that that played out in, yeah, so the, the things with the, like, yeah, people, for example, people thought that the First World War would be like done by Christmas sort yeah. of thing. And people were signing up with their friends thinking, oh, this will be a jolly old adventure and we'll, we'll be back in the jiffy sort of thing. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the 20th century had, had other ideas. And you can see how that, that lost at seeness sort of, possibly peaked with this with what you mentioned earlier about post postmodernism and like mm. ideas around relativism that that there's no sort of that there's no one way to 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 for example to analyze a piece of art and to say this is a good piece of art or not yeah. but it's all in the eye of the beholder and that there's, there's there's no fixed point of reference um and therefore anything goes you know and yeah. you can see how that played out in in really um very dangerous ways um, where, the, you know, for example, the, the, was, it, was it in your books that you talked about this? About, uh, the, oh, it might have been in my last podcast with Donald Clark, the, the killing through the, what happened in Cambodia. There was oh, like, yes, people yes. who had been educated in the, in the Sorbonne and they were educated by these like postmodernist thinkers and they took those ideas back and, and used them to horrific ends. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so, and, and like you said earlier, like when people when people often have charted the 20th century in the past, they get to postmodernism, and it and it is sort of such a horrible, <laughs> like point to arrive at that people sort of retreat back from it. Yeah. And, and and what you tried to do in the book was to try to sort of to chart a way through it and to come out the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Because the generation um, in schools now and the generation raised online in the 21st century are on the other side of it. You know, they're they're doing much metamodern is a, is a phrase that's used quite a bit to describe them. But they're they're um, they did because they didn't grow up in a pre postmodern time. They're not sort of trying to go back to the old certainties and the old certainties always boil down to, well, the way I see things is the true one. You know, uh, they've moved on by now. They, it's, it's taken for red that there's no one fixed great truth. Uh, what becomes important then is, you know, what works, you know, what does damage and what is positive. Um, and there's no, no sort of, um, there's no sort of desire for an ideology that's right and true and explains every, everything anymore because there isn't one and they know there isn't one. So they're not desperately trying to cling to, you know, the, the, there's not going to be a new Marxism or a new, you know, Catholicism or a new sort of worldview that um, claims to explain everything to, to the nth degree uh, and is right in all aspects as long as you don't question its central tenant which is probably a bit you know uh, a bit dubious um and it's it's it boils down to once once that's accepted once once that's you know no longer people aren't struggling with that then it sort of boils down to this sort of practical sense of you know what should we do what works what makes things better yeah the pragmatic optimism mm. you were talking mm. about earlier yeah, and at the end of that book, you talk about the networked world that we're in. You describe it as a beheaded deity, that there is no need mm. for an omphalos anymore. Yeah. Um, and so we're sort of we're merging almost into this meta-modern generation, but there's one more 
big idea from from the the, the uh, 20th century book Stranger Than We Can Imagine that I'd like to pull out. And again, we, we mentioned it briefly earlier, but it's individualism mm. um, and just how what how individualistic a century that was. And it has its roots in sort of in, in quite interesting places. Like you talk uh, a little bit about Ayn Rand and Alistair Crowley. So like these ideas that have really shaped people's lives are often in the in the writings of people who are considered to be sort of you know like not not really mainstream thinkers or philosophers particularly mm. they're, they're just like you know like Adam Crowley especially yeah um, but the way there's a fascinating bit in the in um there's a, an amazing chapter in that book about the space race um and, oh, and yes. about the guy the, the guy what was his name um the guy who was encanting Alistair Crowley he used to oh, be like Jack Parsons thank you Jack Parsons yeah. Um, who L. Ron Hubbard um, lived with for a while, didn't he, and made off with his wife when he went yeah. off to set up um, Scientology. So there's these, this cast of sort of odd characters who inhabit, like the, especially the early part of the 20th century, but those ideas became really, really dominant. I mean, yeah. some people are still banging on about, about Ayn Rand and objectivism now, you know. It's what... Uh, the, the, the one out of all my books, I'm very proud of all my books, the one thing that I kicked myself for not including, because I didn't realise it till afterwards, was that there are um, sentences in Margaret Thatcher's speeches which are identical to Alistair Crowley's works. Wow. Uh, in particular, man has the right to work as he will. Alistair Crowley said that, Margaret Thatcher said that. Wow. The, the, the similarity of ideas that bubbled out of Crowley that then became this sort of, you know, the, the Thatcherite, uh, you know, project is remarkable. It is remarkable. Uh, and it is, and it does boil down to this shift into individualism, which he very much heralded. Yeah, yeah. And, and so this, let, let's, let's sort of walk through, if you like. So, so, so just, to, just to flag again where, where I sort of think this conversation is probably going to go, like the, to, to dip our toes briefly into the future starts here, it's essentially the question is, like, is the human story a comedy or a tragedy? Yeah. And actually, like structurally, <laughs> the, there's not that much of a difference, is there? It's only like the final act. Yeah, it's wave. only in the final act when you when you find out if you're in a tragedy or a comedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you know, it's on. It's still it's still everything to play for still. Um, and and you talk about there's a film that that came out. I've not seen it, but you talk about a really interesting film uh, called Tomorrowland. Oh yes, which, oh it's worth seeing definitely. Yeah, could you, and and you could you, could you just briefly explain that to people in case you in case they haven't seen that? Yeah, it was a big Disney film from I'd oh, maybe uh, six seven years ago, something like that, um, based on the world of tomorrow. The, uh, the the in the Disney parks they have Tomorrowland and. Uh, but all those early Disney uh, parks were built at a time when people did have optimistic you know, aims of the future. And um, all that, that fell apart, as you, as you said earlier, with the, you know, the, the, the lack of positive uh, future uh, images in our culture, almost in a mainstream culture, certainly. I mean, there's a lot of maybe solar punk or afro punk you might find some positive things at the time and it's starting to come through again now but at the time it was they were all gone and it was worrying because if it's true that to build a future you have to first to imagine it and if we couldn't imagine it that was really sort of worrying and so they they made this big um hollywood film i'm trying to i'm trying, george clooney was was in it um based on this tomorrowland thing uh 
and they made lots of really insightful um, analysis of culture's desire for dystopias in that film. But they were unable to come up with something else. They, they just failed at the last hurdle yeah. to sort of convince people that maybe the future this could be okay. Uh, and, and the film was a big, big flop and stuff like that. But it's a very interesting one. It's, um, you know, there, there, are, there are sort of, there are, there are bad films and there are interesting films, you know. And this, this, was, this was very much an interesting one. And I, I hardly recommend uh, people watch it if they're trying to get their heads around the limitations of our ability to imagine a future at this point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a bit where you write like the, the the problem with it is that the dystopian future that that we hear about so much looks all too realistic. It's backed by peer-reviewed science mm -hmm. and this vague sort of utopian like, appeal to hope and human ingenuity seems to lack detail and realism. It seems to be a denial of reality. Mm. Um and that's interesting. And and you you mentioned earlier about Star Trek and how that used to be, you know, like when it was Who's the main guy? The the guy who Gene Roddenberry. Thank you, Gene Roddenberry, and his initial vision of you know the early Star Treks. It's like this very egalitarian future where there's like you know racial equality, gender mm. equality, um, and it's this cool version of the future. And there was a big thing about smoking, wasn't there? Like yeah. people said, like <laughs> he was like, no, people aren't going to smoke in the future. And yeah. that was a, that he like almost lost that this, battle. This was uh, when he was losing control of the the franchise with the second film, the second Star Trek film after the first one. He'd been in control of and lost, you know, or didn't make the money he was expected to. And someone else was directing it. And they had put a no smoking sign on the bridge of, of the Enterprise. And Gene Ronby was furious about this. <laughs> the whole point uh, of this future is people get better. Like people will get better. They will not be smoking tabs in the 23rd <laughs> century or, or, or what it is, especially on a, on a spaceship. And the director was, was like, no, I don't believe this. People are always people, you know, they will always do, have the same faults uh, and um, they will not improve. And I think that I think he won the argument. I think the no smoking sign is on is visible in the Star Trek Two, the Wrath of Khan, or whichever it was. Right. But of course, Roddenberry was right. I mean, yeah, yeah. smoking has completely fallen away. Uh, yeah, not, yeah. Not, not well, not completely, but massively fallen away since that point. So the, the point where the idea that if people were up on, say, the International Space Station. The idea that they would, you know, take 20 B&H and be puffing away <laughs> strikes people as shocking now. People would not expect that. No one would really believe an astronaut would be smoking cigarettes on a spaceship these days. You'd, you have, you'd have to have a, a, a tobacco deck, wouldn't you? You'd have to be farming <laughs> it. It would be ludicrous waste of resources. Yeah, but it's, it's, it, it, was, it was at that point when the belief that we would get better fell away from our culture and was no longer being referenced and, and reinforced. Um, uh, and that was the sort of that, that period we've been through. But we are getting better in so many ways. Yeah, well, this is it. And so this is what I find so fascinating. And there's, there's one other thing before we come back to, to, to the individualism thing. The Dark Mountain Project, mm. which I hadn't come across before. This was a manifesto that was... It was published a few years ago. Could you explain to people what that is? Yeah, it was a fascinating thing. Um, it was by a writer, a very interesting writer called Paul Kingsnorth, and another guy whose name is, I apologise because it's sort of lost now, uh, that took the view was, look, we just as artists and writers, 
we just have to accept the fact that we're doomed that it's all over that uh civilization is going to collapse uh we can't fight it anymore we should just accept that and create art that represents that which is a bold bold stance if ever if ever there was one um and i think it's still going the dark mountain project they produce these really lavishly sort of um uh hardback books of poems and, and illustrations and things uh, and 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 so on um but at the same time it's seductive what they were saying if you if you if you accept it then you don't have to think anymore you know it's it's easier to say we're all doomed it's very very seductive but there are i mean things like i talk in in the future book about rewilding uh, and and movements like that which are very, very hopeful and very, very positive. Um, and a way of, a different way of thinking about the land that utterly restores biodiversity and really sort of sucks the carbon back into the soil and uh, makes, uh, you know, I, I talk about, I went to a place called Nep, which is, which is near me. Yeah, uh, which it's is amazing. One of the, it's a, it's, I went for the deer rut. First, there's, there's, there's a time of the year when the deer go mad. And um, they just want to fight and fuck. Pardon my language, but that's that's <laughs> the deer. So that's the level the deer are on. And the, and in the early morning mist, the smell of musk, the pheromones of the deer is just incredible. It's just present. And you get and you get to somewhere like Nep, and you just you just hear the places alive, just through all the you know the insect noises and the birds and things. It's not just just having you know. Uh, wonderful beautiful deer or or major um large animals it's really down to the microbes in the in the soil and the, the mycelium and the fungus and the insects and the birds and the sea it's 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 it's, it's um leaving nature alone it just comes roaring back yeah so, so can I'll you just ex in, in case people haven't heard of the nep estate could you explain mm. what that is because it was it was a working farm wasn't it it was a working farm uh the uh the woman uh who co-owns it um i want to say her name is laura it's escaping me now um but she's written a wonderful book called wilding which did really well and i think probably a lot of people are familiar with this book called wilding and i'd heartily recommend it uh, if, if people aren't aware of it but basically they had this farm they could not really make a go of it as a financial uh you know project investment they had a lot of clay sort of soil they, they struggled they invested they really weren't making money until around the, the turn of the millennium and then they just sort of basically just gave up and they just said well let's return this to nature uh and stop putting fungicides down and stop putting pesticides down and just uh introduce uh the closest equivalent of the key species that would have been here you know back after the ice age so there wasn't the correct bores but they get a similar sort of snuffling sort of creature uh and it's and rewilding works on the process that if a natural uh ecosystem is restored with its alpha predators and everything all the way down it will be be far healthier than uh, if you try to sort of conserve something. So, for instance, um, oh, they have purple emperor butterflies, they have turtle doves, they have all these um, species that are endangered and that people spend a lot of time trying to conserve. Storks and, and, they, and they create environments for them and storks and things like that. But they're not sitting there going, well, let's make storks live here. 
they're just letting the the uh, the, the natural world recover enough that stocks start to appear um uh, and it really because i i think we've sort of been taught that nature is this fragile thing that it needs us the humans to save it yeah 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 it's so wrong it's so wrong it just needs us to get out the way and then it will just do exactly what it's what it wants to do and 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 come back it's wonderful absolutely and so can we just extend this so so you extend this idea and it's a great little section on net and i've I've booked in we're going camping there next year oh wonderful Um, yeah it's a wonderful place yeah. yeah it's great um but E.O. Wilson, who, who sadly died very recently, yes. um, had this idea of half-Earth, yes. which takes this sort of rewilding idea to, to its natural conclusion, if you like. Could you explain what half-Earth yeah, giving, is? giving 50% of the world back to nature, and we live in the other 50%. And, and when you say it like that, you just go, that sounds insane, that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> but the numbers uh, are not, not unrealistic. I know, I've had a if I'd remembered we would talk about this, I'd have learned my stats. But it was something like 17% of the land mass uh, is already sort of given to national parks and, 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 and wildlife. And it's just about increasing that number. And it, and it changes the way you see environmentalism, which was always portrayed as a losing war, where people are constantly fighting to preserve something, but, then, but eventually the species would be lost and another species would be lost. And it's about managing that loss. With the move towards um, rewilding, it's every percentage of you know land mass that's given back to nature is a victory. It's this, it's this, it's this slowly. Um, again, it's that practical thing we were talking about earlier. It's like what what would actually work, and this is um, this is something that really does work, and it really does halt the collapse of biodiversity. Um, and has major impacts, uh, has you know major impact on um, carbon and climate and, and all these sort of things. Um, and when you look into things like wilding, rewilding, and um, the work being done um, on this non-competitive way of thinking, of, of just understanding that uh, this this is this is an ecosystem, this is a network, this is um, this is complex, but you know, it it will self-balance in time if, if allowed. Um, when you're sort of brought to up thinking that we're all doomed and the environment's going to collapse and, and uh, you know, we're the last generation and all, all this sort of stuff, see something that utterly goes uh, against that pessimistic um, narrative uh, reminds you that it is just a pessimistic narrative. Yeah. You know, the future is not decided yet. You know, it's not true that we are all doomed. You know, it hasn't been decided. It is still up to us. It could go in many different ways. There will be unexpected things that we cannot predict or our mental models of the future. Um, we project out from how things are now. But there are things that, that turn up that completely change things massively. And as I said before, it's an imperfect world. There'll be bad things. There'll be good things. There will not be. It's not like we're going to zoom off to a perfect utopia or, any, or anything like that. Yeah. But it's still, it's not, not true that a dystopia is definite. Absolutely, absolutely. And and when you look, I've, I've got the pages open here. When you look at some of the the numbers, um, you can see that things are tracking in the right direction. Like you say, there's a long way to go to get to Wilson's 
50%, but you were talking about a few examples in Colombia, um, a tropical national rainforest park has been declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site, an increase of 4.3 million hectares, making it the world's largest protected rainforest. The Seychelles government announced that it was creating two new marine protected areas, an area about the size of Britain. Trees covered 7% of England in 1980. That's now 8.4% and is increasing rapidly. We're talking about similar things happening in uh, in Finland. And you're talking about this, this idea of the half-earth, which I hadn't come across before I read your book, is appealing because it rewrites the narrative of conservation, turning it from a tragedy into a quest. And I like that. Yeah. It's something that you can you can work with that as an idea. And that's... I know, go on. Those, those numbers are... Uh, uh, well, it's probably about four years ago I sort of wrote all those. And it's been really increasing ever since. I heartily recommend there's a mailing list and probably a website called Future Crunch. People want to Google Future Crunch and you sign up for their mailing list and it tells you all the good news that's not in the press. It's not Lovely. in the media. And it's this constant drip of, of uh, you know, of things like the sort you were reading uh, in health and environmental issues and in, in um, oh, all, 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 all sort of positive increments uh, in society and in the environment that they're just not in the newspapers. They're just not considered news, uh, but they're happening. And, and subscribing to a mainly like this is, is a sort of necessary sort of counterpoint to sort of existing in our sort of current media uh, ecosystem, which you know, believes that, you know, scary stuff sells and will only tell you the terrible things that are happening. Yeah, absolutely. And so the thing that I find so sort of hopeful and interesting here is that what you're talking about, like lots of this pessimism, the pessimism of like the lack of imagination to be able to think of a, of a, of a, a happy ending to a film called Tomorrowland, um, the, dark, the Dark Mountain Project and so on, the, the, the idea that this is rooted in in the minds of people, say, of our generation, like mm. I'm in my 40s, I'm guessing you're around about the same age. Yeah, I've just turned 50. Um, and, and so, and the, but we, we were born, you know, in the in the 70s, right? And and that was a time when individualism, when the man with no name, and, and what, what was that film with, um, with Nicolas Cage? The, Oh, uh, Wild at Heart. Wild at is, Heart. A snakeskin jacket. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. It's um, the, so much of the culture that we were brought up to not question is being questioned by the modern teenagers, by Generation Z. Um, uh, and they have this great term, edgelord, to dismiss huge swathes of what was <laughs> essentially the coolest stuff possible in the 90s. It's just edgelord now. And you see it through their eyes and you go, my God, they're right. Yeah. That was that was sort of insane. That was ridiculous. Can we talk about the Breakfast Club briefly? Because that that's something that I, I think that the demographic who listens to this podcast probably are familiar with that with that famous film from the from the eighties. Um, and and at the start of one of these books is so 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 the the general idea that I'm sort of tracking towards is this this idea that that all of this pessimism and the lack of imagination is very much rooted in our generation. Mm. I think in the generation that's yes. essentially in power now like we're the same age as the politicians right yeah and it's and not we're it's rooted... not a great universal truth and we just can't see that because we we, we yeah. believe it so deeply so let's talk about the breakfast club and then i want i want to do the, like there's a very sort of lucid analysis that you have with, of, of like the ways in which these generational shifts break down generation x mm -hmm. 
generation Y, the millennials, and then this sort of post-millennial, this, what you describe as this, this meta-modern generation, and the way in which they're different. And again, we alluded to this earlier, but I think that that's absolutely fascinating and something that's hugely hopeful, not in the sense of the, that we can wash our hands of all these problems and just hand it over to the kids because they'll be all right, mm. but that we can actually learn from them and we can learn how to think in a more connected, communitarian less individualistic way yeah um so let's let's start with the breakfast club and how did did you have some experience of that we you watched that film yes with i did some kids? I, I did with some kids it's, it's probably worth saying to start with that um most generational changes uh, are fairly subtle you know they're fairly you know i'm generation x but i understand what the baby boomers older than me are like i understand what the millennials younger than me are like uh i you know i we have different priorities and and different slightly different ways of looking at things but it makes sense we sort of get each other you know but occasionally there's a generation will come along that makes no sense to the one before that they just can't see the world through their eyes and this happened after the war with the uh the, the post-war generation with the silent generation just this is where the generation gap opened up when the baby boomers turned up. They were just aghast at their attitudes and, and the way they sort of viewed the world. And they just couldn't get it. They couldn't get what the 60s were all about. And that has happened again with the the, the, the difference between the millennials and Generation Z, um, who were raised online, which is a very, very important part of it. Uh, and I talk about this through watching The Breakfast Club, as you say, because for my generation, it was one of the great classic sort of teen movies, uh, and the millennials came along and they all got into it. You know, they they uh, uh, they saw it as a as a classic movie as well, and uh, it that looked like it was one of those films that would be passed down through the generations as this as this this uh, you know this great classic. Um, until you start watching it with uh, Generation Z, and it makes no sense at all to them. It's just incomprehensible. And a large part of it is down to the character of Bender, who was the, the cool, the cool bloke, uh, the school kid, who, um, if you recall at the end of the film, uh, ends with him walking across an American football game, punching the air, and the music strikes up. And um, he's the hero for us, and that's his triumphant sort of moment. But for the kids watching it, if, if they see it now, they just can't get their heads around this. Because as they see it, clearly he's the bad guy, right? He's the villain. Like, he's cruel, right? He hurts people. There's a scene where he calls under the desk with Molly Ringwald's character, and it's strongly implied he touches her inappropriately, right? He's the villain. He's the bad guy. Uh, they cannot see it as we saw it, where he was this sort of, you know, this this bold, brave individual who took no shit and was giving it to the man and, and um, all those things that we thought were cool and admirable. Um, they just see as, they just, they just see for what he really is, which was, which was a, a, a nasty person, and a really nasty person. And he had some, some backstory about his, his terrible family that he sort of came from, but that, for us, that was like, oh, fair enough, you know, but for, for that, that yeah. doesn't excuse his behavior to Generation Z. They just won't accept it. And for us, the, the establishment figure, the, um, the, the vice principal was the, was the bad guy. That's but, right. But when the kids watch it, they just go, well, he's just doing his job. You know, he's a comedy character at the worst. You know, he's not a likable <laughs> character. You know, he's, but he's, you know, he's coming on a Saturday to try and 
help teach these kids. You know, that's his motivation. He's not he's not a, a terrible person. And they see the nerd character, a guy called Brian, as the heart of it. And there's a there's a bit where he talks about how he attempted suicide in the previous week. And it's kind of played for laughs in that he used a flare gun by mistake. And um, and that's why, you know, he's been sent to uh, uh, detention and that's why he's in trouble with his family and stuff like that. But for people watching it now, it's like, my God, no, he's the guy who needs our our care. You know, he's the guy we need to help. You know, he's he's the heart of this, you know, this this. It, this you know embarrassing nerd who has to do the, the write the essay at the end of, at the end of the film so the whole film through 21st century eyes is incomprehensible essentially and for being a person who sort of grew up and was it was i was just the right age for things like the breakfast club that's fascinating to me that the worldview that i'm sort of so seeped in has gone it's gone, right? It's going. I mean, there's still my generation around. And when you see things like the um, all the debates about uh, trans issues, you can really see that, that that generation, they get it. They understand it in these sort of terms. And those who are still struggling with it, they, they're kind of waiting for us all to die off. Brexit was another thing. They're kind of waiting. Because this is not a, a generation that believes in, in like, you know, walls. This is much more generation that's about bridges. You know, cutting yourself off is not what they're about. They're about, they're about understanding their sort of uh, connections and building connections. And um, uh, and it's 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 a it's a helpful reminder that the oh we're all doomed narrative is just the way that those raised in the late 20th century saw the world and so when you're looking at say what the world will be like in 2050 and how we'll be dealing with it they will not be thinking like we do they will not have the values that we do they will not have the same tools mental tools of how to understand problems that, that we do um and that's kind of very reassuring because <laughs> we're lacking a lot of things, you know. It doesn't yeah. mean that they necessarily will be. They'll have their own problems and their own, you know, failures and their own issues. I'm not saying they're uh, a perfect society, but it's. I was just always struck um, by people of my age who have teenage children. We all sort of go, they're so kind. It's like a real shock to us how kind they are to their their friends and uh, and, and to people. It's like we weren't like that. Jesus, yeah. we're, they're different. These are very very different. This generation and yeah. um, thank God, <laughs> basically. Well, indeed, I, I've sort of been thinking that as well. Like I, I've talked to my son. I've, I've done lots of work with bullying over over the course oh, yes, of my it's... life in schools, and I've asked my son about it regularly, and he's like, I don't see it. He's like, I literally, I don't see it happening. I don't know whether that's true, whether there's yeah. data on that, but there, there is a sense of it. But but just to, just to sort of to get my head around, like we, we talked about this the other day, didn't we, about how when you're talking about generations, it's obviously broad strokes because like, in a sense it's just a construct. Like there, there's there's just a continuum of people who are like born yeah. every day. Totally. And we sort of draw these arbitrary lines that we to try to sort of make sense of the way that things are changing. Yeah. But it does seem to be, there's a, there's a passage towards the end of the book which... I think if you, if you don't mind, I'll read out and then just sure. maybe ask you to comment on afterwards because 
it's not it's something that I've struggled to get my head around, like thinking about the generations and how they change. Mm. So it starts out by saying each gen each generation tries to move away from the failings it sees in the older generation while unconsciously adopting their successes. For example, baby boomers unleashed a wave of optimistic creative individualism, but they could be extraordinarily naive about how the world works, flower power and, yeah, and so on, exactly, being, yeah. being crushed in the 60s. When Generation X arrived, they accepted and continued the boomers' focus on individuality, but they defined themselves as different by avoiding their naivety when millennials arrived, they liked the individualism and avoidance of naivety, but they found the ironic preceding generation to be too nihilistic and cynical. Millennials reacted by insisting that there was meaning in the world, even if it was only to be found in things that were personally meaningful rather than a great universal absolute truth. Mm. Just pause there for a moment. Um, I mean... I don't know if I've got a question in particular, but I don't know if you can sort of expand on that or bring it to life because I'm, tr I'm trying to sort of to see what was happening in this shift between genera Generation X and the Millennials, and I'm, I'm struggling it's, to get a yes, handle on it. It's it's interesting. It's um, with that book, I had to restructure that book to put the chapter on big data before the chapters on generational things, um, because when I showed it to older readers. They were very dismissive of anything about generations. They would say that, um, oh, I'm not like that. I'm a baby boomer and I'm not like that sort of thing. Right. Um, whereas once I'd done the chapter about big data and how that worked and how, um, how different it was from our normal, regular understanding of information, how once you have enough, uh, a huge quantity of information that patterns start to emerge that are useful even though the individual data may be different and and uh, uh, and, uh, and flawed in many ways and how easy it is to criticize sort of generality sort of pulled out of, of, of sort of big data but it is still is still useful which is why companies like google and facebook are so so immensely immensely wealthy um it was you get things like um the well the problem was before we had computers there was no reason for us to think in terms of big data. It, we just weren't raised uh, to understand how huge quantities of numbers differ from regular information. Um, and so people raised before computers, uh, they, I mean, it's, 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 it's things like um, people go, no, I don't believe in climate change because it was snowing in April, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, now for the younger generation, uh, who can really see the difference between weather and climate, between the, the big data and, and the individual sort of um, uh, aspect of it. Yeah. Um, that looks ridiculous. That looks absolutely insane. It is generally old, older, like reactionary people with like, yeah. columns in, in right-wing newspapers I, I, who say I, that sort of thing. And I, can, and I know from doing talks that if I've got a bunch of millennials in front of me, uh, I can say things like, um, oh, the millennials are less... Uh, likely to vote even though I know that those particular ones in front of me have voted I can say that and they'll still nod because they will say he's not talking about me he's talking about the patterns that emerge in this huge generational massive amount of this huge data set but I if I get, if I'm talking to older people I have to be a lot more sort of careful 
if I say something about baby boomers, well, I, I'm likely to get a, a hand up and a question go, well, that's just nonsense because, you know, I'm a baby boomer and that's not the case. Yeah. And I've got, it's not, it's not, it's not you. It's a me it's thing. The, it's, the, an... it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, um, it's the millions and it's the patterns that emerge out of millions and millions of people. Um, so I had to sort of restructure the book with a load of stuff because they, the big data stuff had to come after the stuff about AI. So there's a load of like stuff about computers for the first hundred pages. Yeah. And then it gets to the interesting stuff and it bugs me because it was much better. Really. <laughs> but it's a, it's a very sort of hard sort of thing to, to do. But, um, the pesky audience. Yeah. But I, I basically, basically we've, we're, the importance of generational differences makes more sense to younger people than it does older at the moment. But again, that's okay. you know, that's shifting. That's that sort of that's that's changing as all these things will. Okay, so that might be as a as an approaching old fogey. That might be why I, I sort of struggle with it a little bit. So so let's just pick this up. There's another little bit. So so you're going to say Generation Z. So that's that. This, this Generation Z. I've also seen them referred to as Generation Alpha. More recently, because okay. even the, even the name like Z's the end of the alphabet, man. Like, yeah. like that that still, sort of feels a bit final, doesn't it? So I I sort of prefer the idea of it being Generation Alpha. <laughs> well, I think the, the the there's a new generation coming through now who are in the primary schools, um, and I think they're often referred to as Generation A, but it's too early to sort of have a name. Okay. For, for these sort of things, uh, and I was as I said, I think I mentioned earlier, I was very lucky that I, you know, there was just like. There's some um, demographic experts who refer to them as iGen and a bunch of other names. Yeah. yeah. I was very close to using a different term. Yes. But I just thought, no, let's go with Generation Z. And that seems to be the one that's sort of <laughs> been accepted since that book was written, which okay. is a bit, a bit of luck. So so let's, let's just pick this up. And then we, 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 this is a little, little bit further to go. Um, it says, so Generation Z in turn see millennials as too self-focused. They understand that while remaining childlike is important and appealing, it needs to be countered with realism. As a result, Generation Z work hard because they don't believe they'll be handed success and recognition just for turning up. They are trying to return to such neglected concerns as financial security and emotional stability. This is something that you mentioned earlier in the book as well, which is really interesting that this, this so-called meta-modern generation are sort of simultaneously really liberal um, mm. in some ways, like with regard to, for example, gender equality, yeah. and just like just general like social justice issues that like they get, like they just get them intuitively. My mm. son is definitely among them. Um, but also they're sort of obsessed with safety and they're much less likely to take drugs and to have sex and to, yeah. to, do, to engage in risky behaviours. And so there's this sort of... There's this Much interesting, more conservative values, yeah. Yeah, so there's this interesting tension. Um, then it says, having grown up in the aftermath of the global credit crunch at a time when there were no positive stories about the future in their culture, mm. it's perhaps not surprising that they have record rates of anxiety and other mental health issues. And we, you know, we see a lot of climate anxiety among yeah. young people because of all of the doom and gloom, you know, bad, bad narratives that we hear about the future. And then it goes, this is the final bit. Given all this, how might children being born now come to view this Generation Z? Mm. If history works as a guide, they will unconsciously absorb what is good about Generation Z, which is their marriage of individualism with networked thinking that has produced this great surge in empathy that we can see, for example, in the, in the climate strikes and so on. And yeah. Lots of the young people that I've been com communicating with through this podcast and other things, you can see that coming through really strongly. They're like, you know, they're saying like this is they're speaking out like I, I had an OK time at school, but 
there are lots of people who are really suffering and I need to speak up on, on their behalf. Sort of yeah, thing. yeah. And seeing lots of that. Um, it's it's that, that not seeing themselves as an individual and that's it. Exactly. It's, that's, that's, it's very much, that's a very good example of post-individual thinking. Yes. And then it says, but it also seems likely that they will come to view Generation Z as being oversensitive the so-called, you know, the snowflakey thing, the people who are very easily triggered and they don't, they want safe spaces and lots of the sort of, you know, that, that, that whole issue is at the heart of the, the culture wars mm. that are raging still. Uh, and then, you, then you ask this fascinating question. Is it possible that the children being born now will react against this and become more stoical and thick-skinned than their immediate elders? If this is the case, then this could be a remarkable generation indeed we might potentially be witnessing the birth of a 21st century, century equivalent to the 20th century's greatest generation who were born mm. between 1910 and 1924. Uh, the greatest generation grew up during the Great Depression and went on to fight the Second World War and create the, create the welfare state. They had not been dealt the best of hands, in other words, but they rose to the challenge remarkably. Would implementing ideas such as basic, basic universal income or half-earth, for example, seem quite so implausible to a generation like that? Mm. Um, and that's a very intriguing and hopeful um, point to, to end the, the book on. Like maybe, maybe the ways in which this, this whole thing is unfolding is that we're going to be creating this generation who are well-poised, who, who, like you say, are networked, but also thick-skinned, yeah. And able to able to be resourceful and actually to be the kinds of people who who can live in and thrive in this world, which, you know, whether or not we achieve half world or not, or whether we achieve 1.5 degrees of global warming or, yeah. or, or more, it's clear that that change is coming down the track fast, you know, yeah. like, in all kinds of ways. I don't know if you've read that book, um, the Yuval Noah Harari book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Oh, yes, yes. Is, fascinating and just all of the ways in which change is coming down the track you know at a rate of knots you know i think that that's clear yeah um how we how we respond to that change our ability to be agile and to be adaptive and that's sort of one of the big ideas that sits behind this podcast that the kinds of ideas that uh, of educational practices that people are interested in is things like project-based learning and philosophy for children and and mm. you know like getting kids to to you know to work with their hands and to learn vocational learning and things like learning to learn, the things that I'm really into. Mm. Not because, and people often dismiss those things and they say, well, if you do a randomized control trial, then just direct instruction and just teaching them from the front of the room gets them better exam results. And we're saying, yes, but <laughs> maybe that isn't what we need. Like maybe, maybe that's just like a short term gain because you're measuring it in terms of exam results, but maybe that isn't creating the kinds of people who are going to be able to thrive and survive in this rapidly changing world that that we are you know not even just that it's coming down the track but that we're already it you know is already unfolding day by day yeah so i hope so i mean yovel noah harari um uh, you know books like sapiens are amazing a fantastic thing but he has that uh, i don't know what university he's part of but he has that very sort of prestigious ivory tower I know, and I will hand down the future to you. He was, this is what the future will be. Then, you know, it's, it's that sort of handed down. And that's not how the future works at all. You know, <laughs> people in the ivory towers, it's not nothing to do with them. The, the, it's everyone else is creating the future. It's, it's, it's all the people outside and their actions and how they see the world. That's how the future is, is built and sort of created. Uh, and it will be the attitudes of the children 
who are four and five, you know, now, that is what will be dictating how uh, the world reaction around, you know, 2050 or, 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 some, or something like that. It is an emergent, the future is an emergent sort of property of humanity. Um, it's not something that's, I think there has been the belief that it's something that's set or that's something that will be given to us and it's something that we have to accept and it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so just to sort of to tie this thing up, um, I mean, as, as I say, every every time I think about the world, I just I return to education. And it's like the thing that you mentioned earlier, I always start these pod podcasts with a little clip. And I think that the clip that really stuck out from what you said earlier was the thing about enthusiasm. Mm. You know, if we can if we can if we can just give kids that if we can give them the confidence and the tools and the wherewithal to follow their passions and to get to get really into stuff and see where that takes them. Yeah. If we can give that sort of birthright to every kid and if we can transform the education system in such a way that it does that. Um, and you don't even need to do it for every single kid. This idea of like diffusion of innovation, you know, you don't need to have like everybody on board with some mm. new way of doing things in order to change the world. You need about 20%. Right? You need you need yeah. a sort of like not that many people who are working in a different way who can go and create that future that you're that you're talking about. And if we can harness, like you say, those latent talents that 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 are essentially a genetic birthright, that's a lottery, right? That we're all subject to. Definitely. If we can figure out how to not suppress those in the way that you know people like uh, you know like that haven't, that haven't been recognised who are from uh, working class roots previously. And um, if we can figure out how to how to elevate what is good and to bring about something that's genuinely more um, more meritocratic, where people people are able to yeah to be recognised for what they have to offer, the future's up for grabs. Yeah, and if you know if a generation if a generation is growing, all um, you know people like myself who are age fifty we sort of raised in a world where you'd think uh, I am not happy. I need a big car. I should have a big car. I'll feel more secure if I have these sort of things. The generation that's that's growing up is thinking, I am not happy. I need to invest more time in my relationships with my friends and my family. I need to be more creative. I need to sort of make a painting. I need to, you know, um, I need to spend time with my friend and talk to them. And then I'll be fine. It's a very different world appears from that little shift in, in attitudes. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of the um, a lot of problems that seem intractable to us, you know, just the, the, the greed and the, um, uh, the unwillingness to sort of, you know, do what's necessary to stop using carbon, it just evaporates away. Well, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to to share your thoughts with me, and for writing this these just such fascinating books you have this uncanny ability to, to sort of to not just to shine a light on like fascinating areas of from history but also to sort of to to make connections between them and to sort of to pull out common themes that that are sort of surprising and alarming and and inspiring and, and hopeful you know mm. um and that's a wonderful gift that you've that you've given and that you continue to give and so so the bond the bond and the beatles book is out yes. uh, later this year isn't in, it in september love and let die of course it's called that. <laughs> bond and the beatles and the british psyche yeah that's out in september love it i love it i mean just just, just as, a, as a sort of as a 
as a parting shot, like why? What is it? It's fast. I mean, the fact that so Doctor No and Love Me Do is that is that the two things that came out on the same day? Yeah. Beatles records and Bond films appeared on the same Friday afternoon in a cold, miserable October day <laughs> uh, in in nineteen sixty two, and they're just monsters in the cultural landscape. The Beatles and the Bond film. Uh, they're just beasts that do not behave like films or bands in any way. You know, the, the notion that um, you could create a film series that continues uninterrupted for 60 years, right, is impossible. It yeah. never happens. No one can do that except for Bond. Or the idea that a band could have the impact on society that the Beatles have. It's impossible. No one, no one can form a band and do what the Beatles do. Neither of them make any sense. Right. Yeah. So, so looking at them together as sort of two competing aspects of um, a country that's trying to come to terms with the fact that it's no longer an empire and it doesn't know what it sort of is, um, is, yeah, is, is a useful thing to do. And I admit I basically spent a couple of years deep in 18th century metaphysics for the Blake book. And I just wanted to come out and do something about like the Beatles and like the <laughs> Golden Isle and stuff like that as a, as a reward to myself. But I think I think it holds up. I think it'll be of interest. Yeah, I'm sure it will. And two very different different versions of masculinity. You know. Yes, I mean, exactly. A lot about male identity in there. Uh, a lot about class and and all all these sort of things that, um, and and uh, that sort of the, the the change in the last sixty years to to growing up in this country it's, yeah. it's about all those things absolutely and i'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to taste it i listened to a podcast that you did recently where you were talking you were working through the beatles singles oh yes um, yes That's... and it was it was brilliant and how, how good was get back oh my goodness oh we lucky to have had something like that That's aren't a... we lucky i was, I was just so enraptured by it yeah. i was just like I want to watch it again. I, and, it, just... and it was eight hours of a band rehearsing. I know. And it was the best bit of media <laughs> in the last year. It's astonishing. Their Wasn't relationships with the, between the four of them are just so fascinating. Yeah. And there were so many little moments in there that I was like, oh, God, I want to just pause it and talk about that for an hour because that yeah. was incredible. Um, yeah, aren't we lucky? And how good did it look? Like, did, did, yes. did it go through and polish, physically clean every single frame of film? Oh, Peter yeah, Jackson just, did, did himself proud, there's no doubt there. Yeah, it's a beautiful gift, as were the Beatles, as are all of your books. So thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time. It's been lovely to spend some time with you. It's a pleasure, James. Thanks for having me. Time is a measure of Don't try